This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. This episode is brought to you by LifeAid, and I have subscribed to one of their products, FocusAid, for several years now, and I'm usually drinking it when I'm doing the interviews. As many of you are probably aware, there is an energy drink crisis and most of these products are horrendous for your health. LifeAid has created a brand new holistic alternative called FitAid Energy. At only 15 calories, these drinks are full of BCAAs, turmeric, B-complex, glucosamine, and only have 200 milligrams of caffeine from green tea extract. They are naturally sweetened using products like agave nectar, and come in four amazing flavors, mango sorbet, peach mandarin, blackberry pineapple, and raspberry hibiscus. And I have to say the mango one is absolutely my favorite. Now, many of nutritionists on this show have hailed the power of caffeine when used correctly. They also talk a lot about not using it closer to bedtime. So me personally, I like to use their energy drink in the morning now, and then as it goes into the afternoon time, switch to Focus Aid, therefore I'm not disrupting my circadian rhythm. Now, Life Aid is offering you, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, 30% off your first purchase with free shipping if you go to fitaidenergy.com forward slash BTS. That's fitaidenergy.com forward slash BTS. And if you want to hear more about LifeAid and the man behind it, listen to episode 207 with the founder, Aaron Hind. This episode is sponsored by 511, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 511 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. 
And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, You'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show, Brendan Heinz. Now, Brendan spent the majority of his career in the Canadian Armed Forces working as a breacher and IED expert in special forces. So we discuss a host of topics from his journey into the military, organizational stress, concussive brain injuries, psychedelics, coffee, and so much more. Before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Brendan Hines. Enjoy. Well, Brendan, I want to start by saying, firstly, thank you to Kevin Sear for connecting us. And secondly, to welcome you onto the Behind the Shield podcast today. Oh, thank you very much. And I, you know, I, I really do owe this to, to Kevin. He's a pretty, he's a very engaging guy. Uh, he's uh, super smart. Uh, he's all over the law enforcement community. Uh, he's, he's gathering quite a following himself. He'll probably be sitting in the interviewer seat before too long. So, yeah, big thanks to Kevin. Absolutely. All right. Well, then, very first question, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? I'm in the country uh, outside a small town called Ashton, which is on the outskirts of Ottawa. Beautiful. So I would love to start at the very beginning. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. 
ironically, I uh, grew up uh, not far from here, about 45 minutes from here, and uh, was uh, a military family. And my father had flip-flopped. Uh, he had been uh, a signaler, and he used to spend a lot of time during the Cold War in the far north uh, monitoring radio transmissions, uh, listening to Soviets, taking Soviet Morse code. Uh, but he got tired of being sent away from his family. Uh, so he changed trades, became a surveyor and mapper, which put him into a static posting here in Ottawa, uh, at which time they decided to make modern maps of the Arctic. So he wound up back in the far north again <laughs> for a couple of years, <laughs> just the way things work out. Uh, yeah, so we had a, a pretty normal upbringing, I guess you'd say. Like, I don't think you could get more middle class. Uh, we were pretty much, as I live here, on the outskirts of a small town, living in the country. I've pretty much, uh, by happenstance, recreated my childhood for my kids, which in some ways I don't think that's a bad thing. You know, they've got tons of outdoor space to play, they get to see farm animals and get mosquito bitten and all the rest. Uh, so my father was military. My mother didn't return to work until I was uh, about 12 or so. Uh, and she just, she worked retail. I, I was going to say just retail, but she worked retail, a thankless job. Uh, and, uh, and took care of a lot of the union responsibilities for, uh, for her shop. Um, and I've got two brothers and a sister. My sister is the oldest. Uh, and then, uh, my two brothers and then I, I'm the, I'm the baby. I, my poor sister, you know, the only one in the family, the only girl. And it's funny cause I always, when I talk about psychological conditioning, I always use her as an example. So we got progressively larger and I mean, I'm not a huge guy, but I'm about six to two twenty. My sister's about, I don't know, five, three, maybe a buck 10. But to this day, when my brothers or I, and we've all boxed and played the cross and hockey and all the rest to this day, when we go past her, we always like duck and cover because she was the oldest. So we were used to getting the beats from her. Right. So it's, it's like, we've got this syndrome, even though I'm pushing 50 now and still carries on. And I, I think that's just the perfect, like that is psychological conditioning. Uh, pretty much a whipped dog with her. She's tough. She's smart. She is one of the coolest ladies I know. Uh, my oldest brother is, lives on the East Coast, where my family ancestry is. He's in Newfoundland. And my other brother is here. Uh, here lives about 10 minutes from with his family. So very, very good upbringing. We never wanted for anything. Uh, not much went to waste. We wore a lot of hand-me-downs had the TV with two or three channels and black and white and I was the remote control. So a very, um, yeah, a very every man upbringing, I'd say. Brilliant. Yeah. I've got an older sister too, and she actually could beat all the boys in her high school at arm wrestling. She's a, we grew up on a farm too. So <laughs> she had like these giant, like white swollen biceps and yeah. So I think we had reason to actually be scared of her. <laughs> Yeah, perfect. Yeah, yeah. My sister, what she couldn't, uh, she couldn't outmuscle with us with. She outsmarted us. So, yeah, she's she's definitely she's still a firecracker. So, good Brilliant. for her. 
Well, going back to your dad's position, what a unique experience that is. Firstly, Russian Morse code. We have dit, 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 da, 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 but da means yes in Russian. So that must have been really fucking confusing right from the bat. <laughs> I, that's, that's a great point. I'm not too sure. It's, it's funny. I remember I remember even years after he changed trades, so he'd be watching an old movie or something on Sundays, and he'd be listening to Morse code. You know, that's not real Morse code. Why don't, you know, just as we were saying previously, why don't they get an advisor for these movies? You know, it's just, to him, it was just, it just sort of ruined it. Um, yeah, it's in interesting times. And, you know, now all of this stuff was done with satellite relays, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but it is funny because he, he couldn't speak Russian, but he could, he could record it, you know, pen and paper. I and mean, these are the days where, you know, you had to spin the dial and find the same guy again because they would change frequency randomly. And he, so he would have to spin the dial and try and find the same guy sending messages again and just tell from his Morse code. So it's, yeah, amazing, amazing. Lost art, right? But, you know, things advance and adapt. So interesting. Sorry about the dog. No, no, you're fine. I got one, two outside my door too. So when we hear of the Cold War, especially, you know, our generation, it was just a little bit before our time, you know, when we were still very, very young, um, you know, as it kind of bled into the whole Star Wars project, I guess would be the tail end of it. What does your dad tell you about the actual threat back then of that whole international tension? Well, you know, there's two things that I really stand out, my dad talking to me. So I joined the reserves in 1990. I was 17. And I, I wanted to be a police officer. So I joined as an MP, as you do. And uh, it was interesting. Uh, I loved the experience. I'm actually glad that I joined the reserves right away instead of the regular force because I just wasn't mature enough. I would have ruined my career if I'd gone into the regular army at that point. Uh, so I remember talking to my dad and... Um, one of the things he, he always mentioned to me is he said, you know, it's, it's interesting. He said, looking back, because so he was in a position at a uh, station here right near the nation's capital, uh, right during the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis. And he was actually on leave in a tiny town in the middle of nowhere, Newfoundland. And he got recalled. And so he said he was sitting on an airplane being flown back to Ottawa, to the nation's capital. And he just sat there, he said, like, what am I doing? Like, why am I, like, if any place is going to be targeted by anybody, it's going to be the nation's capital. Nobody's going to hit this little fishing village of 300 people in Newfoundland. He was kind of surprised that he found himself in this position, like flying back into, you know, it's easy to look back and really say, oh, well, you know, how close was it to war, really? But at the time, this was, the, this was it. Like, the balloon was going up. So, so that was pretty interesting. And there's quite a transition in the, the 30 years that followed that. Uh, and then after I joined the regular army, I'd been in about eight years. And remember my dad saying to me, you know, he, I mean, he's, he served 38 years. And he looked at me and he said, you know, you see more changes in eight to 10 years than I saw in my entire career. And I mean, it was a transition of a million things like technologies, um, enemy risk forecasts, threat assessments, budget, political times, everything had changed. 
So, I mean, it's, you know, it's pretty stark difference. Um, and yet here we are again, if you look at the, the world situation right now and everything old is new again, you know, we're back, we're facing the Russian bear, you know, whole works. And, you know, everything is basically a proxy war. I would argue that it never really went away. I think our attention to it went away. The focus on it went away. But I don't think it ever completely went away. I just think that each side had other issues that were more pressing at the time. And here we are, you know, right back to it. You know, regardless of insurgent warfare in Afghanistan or Iraq or wherever. I mean, it's all, everything is linked, you know. Yeah, it's, it's a you know interesting and unique perspective that you have through him as well. And you know, like, I agree with you completely. You know, it's like the the Ukraine. There's all these other conflicts going around the world. What was it that yeah. made us hone in on that one? And everyone changing their profile pictures to you know Ukrainian yeah. flags and not taking anything away from that tragedy that's happening in that country. But it's happening all over the world all the time. You know, so I, I immediately when we jumped into that, I'm like, okay, what's the why here? And again, that particular issue now makes the russians the boogeyman again it does it does 100 percent, and you know that's i've said the same thing you know uh it's funny i remember i was sitting in an uh you know war story put on your bonnet uh sitting in a an observation post uh, position in uh, iraq a few years ago and uh i got relieved and i went back and i'm laying there in my little ranger blanket and I had a book with me and it was uh, T.E. Lawrence and talking about World War One, and talking about like the first page of his book I think it was Four Pillars and he was saying that he learned very rapidly in the war that A, the people that they had embraced as allies they had in fact told them, made a whole lot of false promises to and that these people were going to be abandoned and then B, that half of the war at least was a bit petrol. And I just, I just like, I couldn't help but laugh. I just thought, wow, you know, it's been 110 years and nothing has changed. You know, just a little bit of geography. But yeah, it's, it's, it's quite remarkable, really. It really is. I and mean, if you take a step back in each of these events, World War I, World War Two, you know, um, Vietnam, Korea, just moving all the way forward, the only common denominator is a few tyrants want to have all the power all the money all the land and send the people of their countries to do their bidding for them that's right that's right and you know people say say religion causes war or or money causes war petroleum causes war no the thing that causes war is people that are seeking power and they're they're just using these things as props uh it's ways to uh, like they have, a, there's a strategic mechanism to them, uh, both for uh, motivating their people and and as a, as a strategic gain of ideology or economics, or what have you. And that's you know, it's none of those things causing wars. It's people, you know, it's always people. Absolutely. Well, even I've talked about this before. If you look at the inception of slavery, you know that oh, yeah. all white people weren't gaining from slavery. A few shitbags were right. you know, involved in taking, you know, trading slaves. The shitbags from Africa trading slaves That's with right. the shitbags from England, and then those shitbags went to the shitbags in America, and then here we are. And then the drug prohibition. You look at what yeah. that was founded on. It was again, it was hatred, it was job justification, it was power, it was racism. It wasn't altruism that that came out of. 
No, and it's 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 funny because every culture is guilty of all of these things at different levels. You know, I was reading uh, how the uh, the uh, lieutenant governor of British Columbia on our west coast was uh, how he had written back to the prime minister, and this is you know, eighteen seventies had written back to the prime minister. We were a newly formed country, and said, you know, my biggest issue is getting the these two native groups to stop enslaving one another and, and committing atrocities against one another. And I just thought, you know, what a, what a, what a telling historical document that is, you know, I mean, the way that we as settlers treated our native people, I mean, that was bad enough, but at the same time they were doing it to one another. So it's, it's, you know, you can discuss the politics and the right and wrong of it all day. All I'm saying is that it seems like the world over, regardless of the color of your skin or the culture that you subscribe to, uh, there are horrible things in our past. And the common denominator is human nature, uh, which, which definitely has an evil component to it. So it's just striving for power. Absolutely. Well, speaking of learning lessons from history, another unique perspective your dad had with his cartography in Alaska was the impact of you know, the environment itself. Um, so did he, in, in his kind of annotation of the land masses, notice an impact environmentally, whether it was you know, ice melting or whether it was an impact on, on the environment that he was you know, studying? Not entirely. Um, I think that he found more of an impact of the clash of cultures. Um, like he always remarked that, uh, you know, it, like, you know, the people of our far North, a lot of, a lot of our native people, they were actually relocated farther North <laughs> when they were removed from their, their original land. And so that was a bit of a shock to their culture. And then of course you've got the, residential schools, good and bad, and you've got the, 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 the government regulations coming in, good and bad. And there's always, it doesn't matter what you legislate, there's always going to be a positive and a negative to it. Uh, so there's a lot of that clash of cultures. And he, he was very fortunate because he was, they often worked in very small survey parties and teams, and they always lived in very remote areas. And they, they had a lot of, a lot of, uh, contact with the, the, the natives. And the other thing I'd say about the, you know, through my, my father's lifetime, uh, I remember him telling me that his father had told him in the 50s, you know, we have killed the oceans. He said, there's no respect in the fisheries and in what we do anymore. And uh, so he said, you know, like fishing is not going to be an industry. And my father and then my brothers and sister and I all grew up with the, the belief that, you know, God may forgive man his sins against man, but he won't forgive sins against nature because we've really, like, we've really created a mess. So we, we always grew up with a pretty healthy respect. As a matter of fact, my father, when he was about 12 years old, he took a pot shot at a crow. Well, this is rightful. And he actually hit it. And uh, he tried to nurse it back to health. And it died. And his father found out. And 
he made my father prepare that bird to be eaten. He didn't make him eat it, but he made my father think he was going to have to eat it. And uh, it was a pretty valuable lesson. Like, if you take it, you're going to eat it. When I was probably around the same age, 12, 13, um, I had a 410 shotgun. Um, my dad actually there was a, there was a, a ghillie, you know, a, an expert in in hunting, um, and gave me some lessons on you know on hunting. I didn't hit a damn thing. We were hunting pigeon, and <laughs> when we came back, he went off and did his thing. And there was a thrush, a small blackbird, garden bird, on the wire above where my farmhouse was, and I shot it and killed it instantly. I mean, it was you know, but as you said, then I was like, well, for what? And to this day, at 48 years old, I'm still racked with remorse that I took that bird's life. Oh, yeah. Because it wasn't a pest. It wasn't threatening anything. I wasn't going to eat it. So it wasn't going to provide sustenance. I just got so pulled into that hunting mentality that I got detached from, as you said, having that relationship with the earth. And, you know, if, if it's something that we're going to take its life, it needs to sustain and clothe and do whatever else That's right. in the circle yeah. of life. Yeah, I'm so happy that it seems like my girls, I mean, I've got, I've got two eight-year-olds and, and they've really embraced this as well. And they're all, they're, it's a funny thing about kids, eh? they'll, like they, they're so pure for one thing, but then they, they don't have a lot of wiggle room on morality. Uh, so we were actually driving into town and uh, we saw a, a cat uh, just sort of trotting up one of the side roads. And uh, the girls pointed it out, and I said, oh, yeah. I said, well, cats sometimes live outside, and it's probably just wandering around, going to, you know, from house to house or whatever. I said, I'm sure it has a home. It looks well out, looked after and stuff. And one of my girls said to me, she said, Daddy, you're wrong, because if that was a dog, you would have stopped to make sure it was looked after. Oof. I was like, ah, what do you say to that? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, buddy, you got me. You're 100% right, so I'm. I'm sure the next time I see a cat now, we're going to have to stop and pick it up. I don't know what I'll tell my wife, but, you know, it's just funny. I think that, like, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty happy with the way that they've sort of embraced this view of animals and nature. And, I mean, they understand where meat comes from, chicken comes from and stuff. Uh, and they, they talk about exactly, as you said, like the circle of life and how we have to look after them. So it's 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 pretty good. Hopefully they stay that well-rounded and still talk to me when they're teenagers. Yeah, no, that's amazing. Because I think that's the thing that's missing in in raising our children. And I'm not putting this squarely on the shoulders of the teachers by any means. But let's take, for example, the last two presidents that we've had, and you know the the prime minister that you have at the moment. Even though I'm, I'll, I'll give him a little bit more in the altruism side than we've seen in the U.S. But here, you know, <laughs> and then that could be argued. I'm not well versed at being a Canadian. Um, but yeah, what I haven't seen from Donald Trump, from Joe Biden is kindness and compassion is bringing mm -hmm. communities together. They've driven wedges between. They've pigeonholed and pit people against each other. And so these are, you know, they tell you when you're young, you one day you could be president, you could be prime minister. Well, right now, I'll tell my kids, to, oh, for fuck's sake, no, I hope you, <laughs> I hope you don't go anywhere <laughs> yeah, near not, that not place. Not for all the money in the world. No. So, which no. is so, you know, wrong. It's so backwards. But it is. You know, through that, through you know, sports and, and, and all these things, 
that I love that philosophy of walk softly but carry a big stick. You know, when oh, you yeah. need to, as well, you know, violence is needed. Absolutely. But the rest of the time, you can de-escalate and you can nurture kindness and compassion by that being the main message. And that's what I truly feel is missing, um, you know, in so many conversations. That's when you get this cancel culture because people want to feel oh, yeah. validated versus being being taught, well, look, don't validate yourself. Go go take care of someone else. That's what's really going to feel good. I I feel like, and this this sounds sounds a little crazy, but I would like to start a project just for a day or two, where we take our parliamentarians and we buddy them up with kindergartners, and we have everybody sit together in a school gymnasium and discuss issues. Because I find it quite disturbing that, you know, you talked about how we've become wedged and divided and pigeonholed. And that's the common denominator in politics, I believe, and at least in the, the, the Western democratic world. And, and we definitely see it here in Canada. I mean, I'm no fan of our current prime minister. And that has nothing to do with the man. It has to do with, well, no, I, I guess I shouldn't say that. It does, but it has to also do with the legislation and the policies. And I see the wedge just being driven deeper. And so I had high hopes, you know, we'll likely be in an election in the next six to 10 months. And I had a pretty big high hopes for, for our opposition party, but it seems like they're doing the exact same thing. And everybody seems so entrenched in their positions. I think the thing we can learn from kids is, at least for now we can, is, is sharing and compromising. And, you know, if you could pick the most radical issues, you know, the abortion issue in North America is huge. It is so verboten to discuss it. But it, isn't it a pity that both sides are so entrenched in an all or nothing mentality that they cannot come together and meet in the middle somewhere? And you could pick any topic in domestic politics and, and you could say the same thing. You know, somebody said, probably smarter than me, said, you know, a bird has a right wing and a left wing so that it can fly in a straight line. And I believe that. I believe that we have to have both viewpoints. I believe that both have, have valid, valid thoughts and ideals and opinions. If I've learned anything in my life, it's that most people in the world, regardless of color or culture or sex or religion, they all want the same thing. They want to be able to chill out every now and then and sit with their family and their friends and break bread. And they want a better future for their children. So it, it's sort of shocking that we have these chasms. And I think that that's, uh, you know, sometimes we, we feel in, in Canada in particular, like we've never been invaded. We've never had a mass attack of any kind here. And sometimes I wonder if that's a good thing because we're so insulated and isolated from, from the real evils of the world that we, we almost create problems. We, we turn molehills into mountains. We perpetuate these divisions when, in fact, you know, we have way more commonality. And that's one of the things about politics. You know, when you look at wedge politics, uh, you know, we're trying to say, look at how different people are, but don't you build a team by sharing your similarities, not your differences? So it's, it's, it's counterintuitive. It's, it runs counter to everything that I've ever learned. 
So I'm, it's, it's shocking to me. It's quite disturbing, in fact. I think society is slowly tearing itself apart. And sadly, this is the, the downfall of every empire in history comes to, down to comfort and opulence. Uh, so when people become like that and they forget how, how fortunate or blessed, choose your term, uh, then, then that's where the troubles begin. And I think that's where we're hitting. And it's going to take some sort of cataclysm, some, some sort of event uh, to bring us together again and to break down those barriers. Absolutely. Well, I always butcher it, but it reminds me of that phrase that's going around a lot recently, you know, hardship, build strong men, blah, 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 yes. you know, and it ends up with being weak again. Um, and it actually, to use a fire service analogy, if you go to a fire department that has very, very busy stations, which is a lot of them, but there might be one or two outliers that are in, you know, the the rural countryside somewhere that maybe don't run very much. When you look at all those, the most bickering, bantering, what we call shift wars will always be the quiet stations, 100%. the ones that are busy, that are, they're the yeah. ones taking care of each other. Hey, you know, I came in 30 minutes early because I know you got your ass handed to you last night. Go home, go see your kids. I got you. Versus those other stations. Did you use my mayonnaise? <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? And it's just, 100%. it's, it's and, pathetic. Yeah, but. Same thing in the military, right? Like, We've had a lot of controversy in our military for the last several years and in our leadership. And all I can think is if these are the types of problems then we're, that we're having, then obviously the people are not being challenged. Because if they have time to concentrate on these differences, then you know, they don't, they're not forced to work together as a team. So let's challenge them. Let's train them. Let's employ them. Let's lead them. You know, that's, it's, it's pretty simple, pretty simple math, you know, with a military or any, any organization where teamwork has to happen, those are the only things you need, training, teamwork, leadership, easy to say, not so easy to do, but all the rest is just superfluous. It doesn't like it's, it's the gnaws on the outside. Absolutely. Yeah. And you look at all the best uh, selection processes, you know, whether it's the SEALs or the fire service, the ones that do it right is a group of men and women suffering together. You know, you, you lose people through attrition and everyone else that's left is bound, you know, as a community, some that those relationships will last their whole careers and beyond. And um, I had a guy on Michael Easter who wrote the book, The, the Comfort Crisis, and he talks about the same thing. And I agree 100%. And if you, if you think things are so good that you are bored, look outside your bloody front door because there's so many things that need to be fixed. But you're too busy enjoying your AC and your phone to actually go and help someone else and seek some discomfort then. That, that's, yeah, you nailed it. I mean, there are people out there that genuinely need help. And if they're willing to help themselves, then we should be there to help them as well. And, and I agree, like seek out that discomfort. And that's, that's, what, that, that's what strength comes from, right? And it doesn't matter if you're talking emotional or psychological or physical. It comes from discomfort. You know, as I loved what uh, it was Simon Sinek that was saying that, you know, like you've got the two axes on the graph and you've got capability or skill and you've got trustworthiness. You want, like trustworthiness is so much more important. Uh, I, I was actually in a discussion with somebody not too long ago and I said, you know, we've got to stop hiring based on skills because skills can be taught. 
but you need to hire based on personality and character traits. Not saying that you want group think or people that are just of one mind, because if, if you're a yes man, then one of us is redundant. But you do need somebody that's like, you can teach the skills, you can build the capability, you can create capacity by hiring more people. You, you can't create character traits, not, not easily. So they have to come in with those and then you can hone them. But, you know, that's what you've got to recruit on for so many jobs. Yeah, well, there's a real kind of leaning on academics and a lot of the, the degree programs in the fire service just don't translate to the fire ground whatsoever, you know, and you want the critical thinkers on the fire ground. So I saw this in paramedicine. I heard this phrase used when I was a paramedic student. Don't be a cookbook medic. And what that means is you open it and verbatim do what it says. And, and, and you know, multiple times you go on, on, on a call and there'll be different traumas or different, you know, disease processes simultaneously. And if you can't take a step back and allow your analytical side to come in, you're not going to be a good paramedic. And I think that's the same thing you're talking about with, with leadership as well. It's funny because we've, in, here in Canada with our with like counter IEG work, the conventional army, and they, they, they've done a lot to build the capability, et cetera. But one thing that I've always challenged them on is why do you allow your students on their testing to have their SOP book? Because they should not be using that as a guide or a template. And they do. And as you said, they need to use their, their analytical mind. Um, and it's just, it's just interesting. I mean, I've always been a bit of an outlier, I guess. Uh, I, I always say that my goal is not to just think outside the box. Is I don't even want to be within a view of the box. I don't even want to know that it's there. But to me, SOPs, are, their standard operating procedures, well, okay, cool. This isn't a standard operation. So now what? That book is out the window. So again, like you said, use your analytical mind. Let's problem solve. And that's, doesn't matter what you're doing. You know, our, our, in, our, in our military system, our officers are still, they've got to be a university graduate. Well, why? I, you know, is your degree in chemical engineering really going to aid and assist you as an infantry officer? I understand the principle behind it, it, or so said, is to ensure that they have a capability and capacity for learning. But that's not how it started. I mean, it started because these were people of a different class. You know, it's almost like a caste system. <laughs> so, so maybe it's time that we revisit that. Maybe we, we say you've got to do a mandatory three years before you can apply for a commission. I think that would change viewpoints quite a bit. It's just my own two cents. But, you know, what, we've given this other system a go for 100 years. Maybe it's time we mix it up a little. Well, I think especially when you, when you ask what value does a degree bring, because a lot of them, as you said, just aren't apples to apples when it comes to profession. And people say, well, you know, but it shows that you can, you know, dig in and study. And it's like, what a horrible fucking system. So to see if someone can dig in and study, you're going to charge them $100,000 to get a piece of paper and do a whole bunch of prereqs that aren't even pertinent to the degree that they're seeking. And this is just attrition. So this is kind of like a fear factor event. Is that what we're telling? What a horrible way of inspiring and educating a group 
by putting them into horrendous debt and sucking their will to live in the process. <laughs> I, I remember saying to a young officer, and I, I, I so let me backtrack a little bit. I remember guys thinking, well, I'd love to go to the Royal Military College as an NCO as staff so they can really sort these officers out, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, yeah, we really need to teach them to not trust their NCOs right from the get-go. You know, like, I think we've got enough of that. So I would like to go there to help mold them and guide them. But I had this one officer who I view as one of my career failures, if you will, because he washed out. He was a young troop commander, brought into my troop. I was a brand new sergeant. I was an active troop one. Anyways, he wasn't working out. And uh, I got called onto the map in the CO's office. You know, when you walk in and the CO and the DCO and the RSM are all standing there. And you're just thinking, oh, no, like, what have I done? And they asked me my opinion on him. I said, well, I'm only going to be forthright because my loyalty has to go down to the troops as much or more than it has to go up to the mayor. But uh, anyways, regardless... One day I sort of was having a closed door argument with this young officer. He said something about his, his years in university had taught him whatever. And I said, actually, I said, for one thing, you're confusing schooling and education. And for another thing, your five years in university were spent reading about what I've been doing. So, you know, perhaps we could look at each other as peers here instead of, you know, again, there's that wedge. Yeah, it's sort of sort of the way I look at it anyways. There's there's a difference between schooling and education. I know some people that are very well schooled and completely uneducated. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've got my degree in ex-phys and I've had this conversation with with several people that went through the strength conditioning field through higher education. And that's one of the downfalls there. Like I spent tens of thousands of dollars on my degree. And really when I came out the back door, wasn't given the tools to really understand you know training strength and conditioning and then kudos to university of florida one semester we did basically all the prereqs for the uh, nsca cscs which is a great cert so that mm -hmm. in itself was good we learned some interesting things but it was so myopic in what you were focusing on rather than like more like a trade school mentality what are the actual classes and certifications that we can give these people in three years so when they walk out the door like, say, for example, in the fire service, forget the pet paper pushing stuff. Give them, you know, the special operations classes and higher level paramedic skills and all these things. So when you walk out the door, you can now pass on those skills and start teaching and training and be, you know, someone that shows up on scene that, that people are glad. But you did, you know, admin operations 27, you show up on scene, you, you're fucking useless to us. Well, so. it's funny that that you, you mentioned that because, you know, we've said the same thing in the military for years where we, we need to draw a thicker line between tactical or leadership officers and staff officers or, you know, doers and administrators, you could say. And, you know, I remember uh, one of, my, one of my, my best friends said to me one day, sort of, I was complaining about some paperwork and we, our desks were back against each other and, I said, he said, well, you know, administration is, you know, it's part of the art of warfare. And I said, yes, it is 100%. But bureaucracy is not. Like, like I'll look after my troops, you know, beans and bullets and medical care and whatever they need. But 
you know, the triple layer four carbon copy, you know, write the memorandum for this. It's like, why are we spending six or seven hours in the office and a couple of hours with my troops? So it should be the inverse. But, you know, I digress. I think every system becomes a self-licking ice cream cone <laughs> where it's, it's self-feeding, right? And, and I think you need to tear down institutions routinely and rebuild them with an eye to what the key mission needs to be and what the focus is. Absolutely. Well, we kind of jumped into your military career a little bit. So, so going back, <laughs> when you were a school level, was that what you were dreaming of, of, of doing, entering the military? And then um, if not, what was it? And then if so, walk me through your journey into the, the engineers. Oh. <laughs> I, think, I think I've had some sort of like long-term ADD or something my whole life. I mean, I bounced around from, and I remain interested in a million different things. Um, I wish I was one of those people that could, could read something once and retain it. Uh, but, you know, there's so much in the world to experience, to, to learn. And I'm, I'm all over the map, always have been. So, you know, when I was young, I wanted to be, a, I always wanted to be a policeman. Uh, and then it was, oh, maybe I'll get into politics. No, I'd like to get into business. I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to get into marketing. And then, you know, it was back and forth, back and forth. And then, you know, as I alluded to before, I mean, I joined the reserves as a, it was a gateway for me. I figured, okay, I'll join the reserves. I'll get some experience. I'll go into the provost, military police uh, for a couple of years. And that'll, that'll thicken up my resume a little bit to go to, to the police. And that was not coming to fruition. Um, we hit, uh, there's a lot of reasons. I didn't have enough schooling. I actually left high school credits short. Uh, sorry, two credits short. And so I finished them on correspondence, you know, before internet where I had to like fill out the booklet and mail it back and wait for my scores, etc. cetera. Uh, and then, um, you know, I got into a couple of different hiring pools, one with the provincial police, one with a small town police in Northern Ontario, uh, and neither one panned out. Uh, same with the RCMP. Um, you know, it could have been one of a million reasons. Uh, it's easy to blame hiring equity. I'm sure that that was a factor. But, you know, I'm sure there's other things as well. Regardless, I sort of said, you know what, I'm really enjoying the reserves. Like, I'm really liking this. Like, maybe this is something that I should pursue. Then I got distracted for a year, two years. Uh, you know, I was living on my own in Northern Ontario. I had a girlfriend, there's the, the kicker right there. <laughs> and then, you know, I got distracted. I did some various jobs. I worked in some bars, I did commercial roofing, et cetera. Moved back and I was floating around. I did some freelance landscaping and stuff. So a little bit of that entrepreneurial stuff. And I was still, I just hadn't quite found myself. Uh, like, you know, re, let's reinvent that term in the 60s and 70s, you know. But uh, yeah, I was searching for something. I didn't even know what it was. I was actually on the cusp with landscaping uh, where I was considering buying a pickup truck and hiring a couple of people uh, as well. 
to, to work with me because I was, I was getting, I was turning down jobs because uh, I, I just didn't have enough time for them. And then I said, you know what? Like, I don't, I don't think this is it. Like if I look 10 years down the road, this isn't what I want to been doing. Uh, so I enlisted, I enlisted in the combat engineers and never really looked back. Like I was all in when I signed up. Uh, and then a few years in, I started thinking, well, you know, I need another challenge. And uh, then I, I wound up, I, I started doing more and more explosive work. And I got into, uh, I was an IED assistant on a team. And then I became an IED team lead. Uh, did a few more deployments overseas. Again, you know, juices were flowing. Okay, what do I, I need another challenge. And I was actually looking at getting out. And I was looking at reapplying to the Ontario Provincial Police or signing over to the Australian military. And they were both quite interested, uh, much to my shock. And uh, I had previously, I had applied to Special Forces and I had applied as an assaulter or an operator. And it was funny because I did a selection and I fractured my shin. And then I did a selection and I passed it. Then I did the assaulted course and I failed the shooting package. And then I did the assaulted course and I made it halfway through before I got summed up. And I thought, okay, this is definitely over for me. And then I ran into the guy that actually cut me the second time. And uh, I ran into him overseas. I ran into my coming to camp. I was in Bagram, the US camp in Afghanistan. And I had done a couple of IED jobs sort of around the special operations guys. And they said, well, why don't you come back and reapply? And I said, no, I don't think that, uh, I don't think that that's for me. Like, you know, I've had enough kicks that they got two selections, two operator courses. This isn't me. And they found, you know, they said, well, why don't you come in as an explosives guy? So I did that. And never, never looked back, never regretted it. Uh, again, when I, when I sink my teeth into something, I'm all in. And uh, it takes a long time for me to get bored with it. Uh, but when that boredom hits, I'm generally looking for a new adventure. So, yeah, I, I wound up, I did uh, 11 years in Kansas and uh, 12 years in the Army before that. And then I did a year and a half or two at headquarters and then medically released uh, due to injuries. So, yeah, it was a great run. No regrets. A million you know, everybody's life, if they choose to look, is full of adventures and stories and great experiences and friends. Mine's no different. So, I mean, I, I went to 26 different countries through my life and had some amazing experiences. So now I'm on to a new chapter, you know, fantastic. I love it. Well, let's, firstly, if you don't mind, I'd love to hear what the role of the combat engineer was. And it was pre 9-11 when you entered, is that right? That's right. Yeah, it was. And 9-11 was, you know, even though, I mean, it was in the U.S. I mean, even some Canadians seem to forget we're a separate country, but it was like worldwide. That was, as you know, I mean, that was Earthshot. That is a moment that will, like, nobody is ever going to forget. If you ask people where they were on September 11th during that attack, everybody knows. Everybody can tell you in minute detail what they were doing. 
So yeah, when I first signed up for the combat engineers, I looked at a few trades. I looked at infantry and I looked at medic and uh, they were both had points of a lot of excitement. Um, but I felt like the combat engineers had so many different areas of speciality that I wouldn't get as bored as fast. So that's, that's what I threw myself into. Uh, their, their overall role is to ensure that friendly forces have mobility on the battlefield, can, can shoot, move, communicate, and to deny the enemy the same. So clearing ordnance, clearing mines, clearing obstacles, creating roadways, bridges, etc. I always loved it. I loved building things. I love uh, you know, all aspects of it. You know, we'd move with the infantry. We'd help them clear a path through obstacles, etc. Fantastic. Loved it. But again, started to get bored. Wasn't feeling as challenged as I thought I should be. And I started looking at bomb disposal and more ordnance clearance. I had, uh, at this point, had two deployments. Uh, one was in Turkey with... Uh, for disaster relief after they had earthquakes uh, in 1997, I think it was. And then um, the other one was uh, going to Bosnia and uh, clearing. You know, we did a million things there, but the thing that I loved was, was mine clearance. And uh, that really spurned my interest. So, so that, that threw me into the ID world. And uh, yeah, I loved it. It's, it's where you need to think outside the box and you need to be creative and you need to understand what's the intent of the enemy. What are they trying to achieve here? What are they trying to target? And it's like putting together a puzzle. So I, I really love that aspect of it. So before we get to, you know, obviously the Middle East, talk to me about those two deployments because you've got one that's a natural disaster that's in again close to the middle east um you know the resources may not be where they should be the the you know the building materials and infrastructure may not be where it where it is so here you are canadian forces helping with that and then i'd love to hear as well your perception of bosnia because i've heard so many different lenses on that too well bosnia was interesting for me uh, it would, had died down quite a bit. I mean, Canada, some of the Canadian troops had had some pretty epic battles there and sort of handcuffed, uh, you could say, by, by the United Nations at the time. And when I went over, we went in as part of uh, ISAF, the International Stabilization and Assistance Force. So we went in with NATO, not with the UN. And it was more of a, yeah, sort of a, not a peacemaking, but Certainly not, not going to take any guff either. But a lot of the fighting had quieted down. But you could still see the horrors of it. I mean, there's towns that were just completely annihilated. Uh, there's mass graves. And it's, just, it's just horrible. And it's such a dichotomy because you're in one town and you see it just leveled. And then you go up, you know, you're driving along in your carrier and you're going through another town where people are getting, they're going out to the nightclub. And you know, don't get me wrong, they weren't wealthy, they didn't have, uh, you know, fancy cars or anything like that. It wasn't, it wasn't like, you know, living here, but, you know, they had some comforts, and it was just so dichotomous. I mean, it's, it was just a, a, a constant clash of, of two systems of living, where it's like warfare, and then, you know, over in the town act, like, like nothing's going on. So that, that was wildly interesting. 
And uh, there was a lot of, well, there's a lot of shenanigans being a young soldier, <laughs> you know, certainly, you know, you find out who the best moonshiners are in town and, you, you know, stuff like this. Um, it, it was interesting, you know, I was young and wide eyed and getting to experience that. And then as well, we had a great system of leave where we got different leave periods, like, you know, three days here, three days there, and a couple of weeks in the middle, you know, which over an eight month tour was just fantastic. So great opportunities to travel and that rounded me out a little bit more. But yeah, the Bosnia situation to this day, I don't fully understand it. I sort of went in there uh, uneducated and as I said, like wide eyed. And uh, maybe it's just that it's so foreign to me that the cultural differences had been, you know, building up for so long and just the level of hate and distrust between people who for all other intents and purposes were extremely similar. It was, it was really quite different. It was, you know, kind of shocking. Um, and then, the, yeah, the deployment to Turkey, that was completely different where, Canada built a lot of a lot of uh, relationship bridges there. We were one of the few federal governments that actually sent people uh, and aid, but we sent people, and uh, we have a disaster list, uh, assistance relief team here, or did. Uh, it's sort of been torn apart a bit since then, but uh, we had like medical stations and water purification stations, etc., and we could surge people into an area quite rapidly. So we did that. We set up water purification. You know, we were purifying about 60,000 liters of water a day for people and distributing it. Uh, we had a, a medical hospital for, for the people of uh, this, this small town that we were in. Um, it was, again, it was interesting. And you see, you see so much, you learn so much, um, like how grateful people can be how appreciative and how, how easy we have it here. So we were living in a camp on an old soccer field. You know, we we're living in tents, but it was quite comfortable. And then there were these people who've lost everything and they've got their whole family just wedged into one of these little UN tents and whatever belongings they could muster. And one man came to us uh, and he was looking for water and he had a jug to fill up with water, but we also had the uh, capability to, to fill bags with water. Like, you know, we get milk in bags here in Canada and we would like seal these, these little plastic bags of water could distribute them a liter at a time. So we loaded them up with these and helped them carry them back to his tent and stuff. And the next day he came back to us and he had a little hand woven basket filled with hazelnuts and some breads. And he said, you know, I, it's through, through the translator. He said, I regret this is, all I can repay you with, but you've been so kind. And we're just like, this is ridiculous. Like you just walked how many miles back to your family and you know, your kids are, they're harvesting these hazelnuts and your wife makes this little basket. Like, like the, the gratitude and appreciation was so overwhelming. You know, there was a lot of us got dust in our eyes <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's just, it's just mind-blowing. You know, we invited them to sit down. We're giving them parts of our rations and stuff. And 
Yeah, it just it just really illustrated for me the the stark differences that there can be in people, but again, that we're all sort of striving for the same things. It was really it was a really heartwarming uh, mission, uh, and you felt like you were really making a difference. You're doing your part, and you realize there's a lot of similarities, you know. And we got a really good Canada. That was one of the biggest things, and from the, I'd say that was the point where it really illustrated to me how good we have it. Well, you actually answered a question that I normally pose to anyone who's been deployed you know, in a combat zone, and it's a double-edged question. It's, you know, were there things that you saw regardless of the politics that took you over there, you know, through a soldier's eyes, some of the atrocities, and then conversely, moments of kindness and compassion. And you just answered those, and they circle around to our discussion earlier. You have these people who are so similar, Serbs and Croats, um, you know, Sunnis and, you know, the Ba'ath Party or whoever it is that are basically country folk, you know, native country folk. And they're divi divided and they're labeled and then they're pitted against each other. And then conversely, what we also don't hear is because, I mean, my whole thing is is on the, on the news, especially in the U.S., we get a very polarizing view, either very pro-war, kill them all, let God sort yeah. them out, very anti-war, they're all baby killers. 100%. And no actual voice of, of the soldier, of the sailor, of the airman. Um, and so these moments of compassion, these Canadian forces that are handing out war, and then, you know, these, these regular people that are trying to live while these atrocities are happening in their country and what they're doing for our military and what our military are doing for them and their animals. I mean, these are these are the stories that we need to hear. So thank you, firstly, for sharing those. Oh, thanks for, for giving me a forum to do that. I, you know, I, I, I can't disagree. And, you know, you hit something there, like which ties together what we were just discussing and what we were discussing earlier. And you talked about, you know, we've got people that are just so similar, but then we assign them these labels. And I find it really weird that, like, within my lifetime, uh, I think I'm a year or two older than you, so, like, 27. Um, no, yeah, that's know, right. I'm, I'm 25. I'm, <laughs> I, I, it's just funny that we, like, when I was a child, I remember that the big move was to break down labels. Like, let's stop labeling people into groups. But now, the cancel culture, they're saying, you know, like, it's sort of a don't label me, but label me. Like, I want to be seen as African-American. I want to be seen as gay or I want to be seen as whatever. Well, no, I just want to see you as a person. And that's not going to make these disparities that, have, that exist. And most exist for historical, like it's historical reasons. They're not even reasons, but it's historical factors that has created socioeconomic disparities that have pushed some people ahead of others. I will grant you that all day. But at the same time, we have to stop using labels and just view each other as people. And you know, the, the, it's, it sounds so, so cheesy, so like hippie-ish, uh, which is ironic, but at the same time, I think only soldiers and hippies understand how much soldiers and hippies have in common. Um, and that, that's one of the biggest viewpoints is that, you know, we're, we're all just people. So why don't, we, why don't we focus on that a while? Let's just put down the division. Can you imagine what would happen in your Congress or our parliament if we took away party labels and had everybody just seating all over the place and you weren't allowed to use party lines? Wouldn't that be remarkable? And really, you know, that was the basis of our governments originally. 
but then you know people wanted power and et cetera, et cetera. And that's how labeling started, you know, create these teams, create divisions, et cetera, et cetera. That's just ironic how what we used to do to try and blend society is now we're doing the exact opposite. And I find that sad. And I wonder, I wonder how far down the garden path we're going to go with this, where we continue to subdivide and subdivide. Like I've always had a problem with, I, I understand in one way the meaning behind it, but when we drive things into like, anti-Latino, uh, yeah, anti-Latino racism, anti-Black racism, anti-Native racism. Why don't we just try and tackle racism? You know, like, well, you know, you know, or sexism or whatever. Like, why, why don't we, like, let's look at the big picture instead of, instead of these little micro subgroups that are, uh, they, they almost work against each other. It's unfortunate. Yeah, I just I've had this conversation with a couple of people. We have a month now, you know, Black History Month. My wife is um, half Filipino. She, I, I told her, you know, that was your month, you know, Asian American month. You know, I hope it was good for you. <laughs> but what we actually need is don't be a dick year. That's it. Don't be a fucking asshole every single day. Yeah, I think that's absolutely brilliant. I mean, life is simple. Don't be an ass. Like that's the only rule to life really is, you know, I, my, my girls, every time my little girls are, aren't sharing well or arguing or whatever, and, uh, they always, always say, you know, what's the golden rule? You know, like, how are you supposed to treat others? How I want to be treated? Yeah, exactly. So would you appreciate that? Well, no. How do you think your sister feels right now? Probably not too good. You think you can do something about that? And I feel like, like, I almost think we need a community sergeant major program. I've dreamt this up a few, you know, me and my buddies discuss this all the time. What a great way to sort out society and employ veterans all at the same time. There's so many issues we could tackle. Like, you know, imagine the community sergeant majors in the grocery store. You, fatty, put down the Oreos and go to the vegetable department. You are too fat to be in the dessert aisle. Imagine what that would do for healthcare in our country. Or, hey, why don't you pull your head out of your ass? Why are you talking to that person that way? Why don't you put yourself in their position? How do you think they feel? March over there and apologize to them and then drop and give me 50 push-ups. You know, maybe we need that. You know, like, you know, like it's a play veterans and sword society. And everybody now and then, I'm sure all of us have a, well, I know for a fact, everybody in society has this breaking point where every now and then they'll snap on somebody and, and sort them out. And I, like, for me, I don't like votes. And I'll, I wade into those things. I always look at my wife apologetically, you know, the couple of times that I've snapped on somebody and I say, you know, I really am not impressed with how I handled that. But at the same time, this is my community. Like I took time out of my hectic schedule to point out the error of somebody's ways to them. So, you know, maybe I'm on my high horse, but maybe we need more corrective measures like that. I don't know what the solution is, but we, we do need to learn some things in society and some of these basic rules, like the anonymity that is afforded to us by not naming names and by living in these, like a megalopolis where there's, you know, 
10 million people, that anonymity works against us. And maybe we need to be in smaller, you know, if we want to talk about dividing people into subgroups, then let's just make smaller communities so that people are more inclined to know one another and, and not notice their, their race or religion or creed, you know? Yeah. No, I agree completely. Where, where I live, I've talked about this quite a bit, um, is four subdivisions around a communal space. So there's a park with a football pitch on it. There's a pool, there's tennis courts, basketball court. And literally people of all colors and creeds live here. I'd say it's kind of very, you know, mid-level as far as the affordability. Um, you know, there's people fresh from India, China, you know, all over the place. We've got Muslims and Christians and I'm sure atheists, though it's harder to tell them from their garb. <laughs> um, just the, the probably the frown. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not, you know, I, I am spiritual. I don't ad ad adhere to a certain practice. But I'm the same. Um, you know, that, there's that number, and I always forget the name of it, but it, I think it's 150 is like the, the max a tribe is supposed to be. And so, yeah, if you can just kind of boil down each you know, part of your community, and I'll give you a perfect example of exactly what you're talking about with the anonymity. We had a young man terrorizing our neighborhood in this little sports car. And when I say terrorizing, it's like 25 or 30 mile an hour, depending on which streets you're on. And this kid was flying through 60 or 70, almost wiping out in front of bus stops full of kids waiting for the bus. And so... We have a community Facebook page, which, you know, can be whiny and bitchy sometimes, but usually it's pretty good. Hey, someone tried to break into my car, this kind of thing. Um, and so I put it out there. Hey, this is the car. This is the person. And I had one of two responses. A few people gave me information. Hey, I think he lives you know, the, the, the community next to us. You know, oh, he goes to my high school. And then the others were one guy was whining about the police giving his, his wife a speeding ticket. So I'm like, all right, you're a fucking idiot. You can leave this conversation. Yeah. Um, and then the other one, oh, well, they should put speed bump. They It's always they, 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 they. The so unseen, like, unknown. Exactly. They, yeah, yes. yes, big brother. The they is us. Yes. Yeah. So, and that was it. So I'm like, all right, well, you know, I actually went to our police, got a friend of mine is in the police department. He contacted the guy that's supposed to be covering this area. Fucking nothing. So in the end... I used the information these people gave me. I did. I'm very good at internet stalking. I found this kid. I found his dad. I found where he worked. And I calmly went to his place at work and sat down with him. Super nice guy. Totally unaware of what his kid had been doing. He'd been on a... Every time he drove with his dad, he was driving like a, you know, absolute rock star. And just, you know, wrong, wrong influence, wrong time in a machine that could murder a lot of people. And he took the keys from him. And I haven't seen that car since. The kid still comes to our subdivision and uses our basketball court, but he's obviously been reprimanded and it's been, it's been addressed. And that's it. Yeah. Sometimes you just bide your time and you sit back and sometimes you have to be the one that steps up and you can't be afraid of that one time when one guy did this and they pulled out a gun or whatever. Otherwise, no one will ever do anything. Sometimes you have to grow a set and just stand up and do it nicely so that you're not being a dick and putting people's walls up. But if you don't fix your community, who the hell's going to? Well, and that's just it. You know, you hit, man, you just really hit so many things there. It's, it's so true. I mean, we need to take ownership of our communities. And sadly, what we've got right now, at least here, what we have, well, I say here, I mean, in Canada, I mean, I live, everybody on my street knows one another. We've got a, 
you know, about 15 houses, 20 houses on this street, the whole length of it. It's in the country. It's, it's fantastic. What a great place to raise a family. But, you know, much the same around the Western world, we've got these, like, these housing projects where people have no privacy and they treat their, their, their houses like their, their compound or their eggshell. And they go in there as their little sanctuary. And so, and I understand the need for that. Uh, to a point. But what we've created is that we've got people who are commuting from this little subdivision for an hour, they commute to their workspace and then they come back and they, they, they're back in their little sanctuary again. So it's not a community, it's a residence. And, and that's unfortunate. I think we need to build, rebuild the sense of community and community comes from ownership, owning your responsibilities and owning the community and looking after one another, you know, what we've got a mentality of it's, well, it's not my job, but it is our job, or maybe it's not your job, but it's going to influence you. And so you need to, you need to get in on that as well, whether it's that piece of garbage that you're walking past or the graffiti being spray painted at the community center, there's something we can do about that. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. And then you can expand that out, you know, to your state, oh, yeah. to your country, to to your world. Yeah, it's the broken window theory, you know. It's, uh, you know, you mend that window and it, it does have a spillover effect. And I met my, my wife. She was working in a small town at the Boys and Girls Club. And uh, I think it was where she, this is in the days when she used to admire my stubbornness. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, so one day I went over to this Boys and Girls Club and I said, look, your, your front door is really in bad shape. Like, why don't I repaint it? So the next day I came by with, with some paint. I painted the door bright red, happy red color. And same with the side door and all the rest. And I was talking to her the next day or whatever. And she said "Some somebody scribbled all over with black, black paint or black marker or something. I said, okay. Well, I mean, I still had paint. So I just went back over and I painted. I bet you I painted over that door four or five times in a couple of weeks. But you know what? I won. And you could see, like, it was really interesting because you could see things sort of developing in this little tiny community where the more the community center, the Boys and Girls Club, sort of expanded their network of looking after the, their little corner of it and look and creating friends among the different kids and getting to know the teenagers and stuff. And then you could just sort of see the growth through this, this little area where things started looking a little bit better. It's just, you know, it gave, gave reason for hope. And I think, man, that's something people need nowadays is, is hope for something bigger than themselves, something that they're proud to be part of. We look to, we, you now people have hope for, for a higher income or a different job or a fancier house or to move to a tropical place. It all seems like it's, it's hope for an escape. And, and maybe we need to reverse that where, where we look to be like, like a hope to be more involved, a hope to be more influential. Well, you mentioned the Boys and Girls Club, and that's another resounding theme um, on this, this podcast. All the different voices that have been on here is mentorship. 
And again, you want to create change. And an example I use over and over again, a friend of mine, Chris Hickman, started a firefighter mentorship program. So you talk about some underserved communities. Yes, they exist, and they are a byproduct of some of the tyranny and greed that we talked about earlier, Um, not from the residents, from the system that created that. Um, But you can't tell, you know, someone who's, who's, you know, living from paycheck to paycheck, oh, just give me $6,000 so your son can go to fire academy or police academy or whatever it is, or daughter. So what they did is they were like, all right, well, we will provide all the 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 gear, the training. All you have to do is physically show up at this fire station three days a week, and we will prepare you for fire school. There are scholarships that you can earn to go through fire school. And the other side, we have numerous fire departments looking to hire you. So when you circle around to the diversity conversation, now you're looking for the best people, but you're actually giving people in underserved neighborhoods a chance to rise up to be a good candidate. You don't just bring them in because of the color of their skin. You give them all the tools to discover if they're meant to be in that profession. And if they are, you raise them the fuck up and make them an excellent candidate and worthy of a position. I absolutely, I absolutely love this. I was actually engaged in a conversation that I, I had to tack tactfully withdraw from <laughs> I was it was on LinkedIn and it was a senior member of our federal police and she was I posted a, a video like like look this is the exercises that we're doing as part of this test to establish new new fitness standards um, for the 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 Royal Canadian Mounted Police and you know we want it to be more reflective of of different genders and sizes and capabilities and I was just sort of like and I had set up some various recruiting programs or, uh, for different jobs that I'd had. And I said, you know, those are not, those are not factors that should be entered into this. Like we need to look at what are the job requirements. We need to drill down into those. But regardless of what other makeup there is behind a person, you know, they're like, those are irrelevant. Like your concrete factors, your planning factors are what are the job requirements? What is the minimum standard for the job? And then you just test to that standard. It doesn't matter. I'm a firm believer that every applicant to any government job should be assigned an applicant number. And that's how they're dealt with. And there should be no references to, to, to their sex or religion or their, their, their name or background or ethnicity. There should be no references. They're a number. And so that the they there is nothing attached to that file. It's just their scores on all of the various tests. And what's ironic is, you know, it's always been the the like soft community, the SF groups, the SWAT teams, etc. It's always the more elite groups that have found that that's the system that works. Is let's get rid of all of these other distractions. Let's just look at raw capability and capacity not skills because like i said before we can train those anyway so i you know i engaged in this conversation and i i got this tremendous pushback that i i was i was sort of surprised because you know so here's somebody on an, uh, what is purported to be a professional platform and they're engaging in what i viewed as unprofessional speech you know like well we've you know, we've evolved from that you need to be a six foot two white male to be an RCMP officer. And I was just like, it's sad that you have to bring 
that into it. Like, you know, I was hoping for a, a fulsome discussion, but this program, this fire, fire, uh, firefighter mentorship program, like that's how we build a future. That's how we do these things. And a lot of people just need an opportunity. You know, they're struggling to keep the lights on, keep food on the table and anything beyond that is, is sometimes a dream. So let's like move them forward a step. And if we can provide that hand, I believe in a, a hand up, not a handout. Let's give people opportunity. What is it they say? It's, um, it's uh, equal opportunity, not equal achievement, right? So we need to, or eat, not equal outcome. So like, let's, let's level the playing field, but I think that's how we need to level it. I, I love programs like that. Uh, yeah, mentorship is huge. I see a crisis in our communities, a mental health crisis, for a million different reasons. One of them is that people have forgotten, as we were talking about before, they've forgotten what hardship is like. And people confuse a bad day with a traumatic day or a bad event with a traumatic event. And those are very different things. And both can influence you over time, but one is a much more rapid potential descent. And so, you know, so I, I think mentorship is uh, something we're going to need more of in the future. And when you look again, at, like, we look at uh, different socioeconomic groups, we look at single parent families, et cetera. You know, that's where the difference can be made is, is good mentorship uh, to some of these, some of these youth out there in particular who, you know, they need somebody to help them, to give them some guidance and, and to allow them to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. So they can't do it with the burden that's on top. Absolutely. And even my son is in the JROTC program, the Army um, you know, Youth Program. And uh, he just spent a week at a, a camp, an adventure camp doing rappelling and, you know, uh, the Fantastic. leadership things it was amazing and he lived in a tent the poor kids it was like 106 every day here they had storms two of the days so they already got some discomfort but the other side of this whole conversation is also you could be a great father i could be a great father which you know i hope we are but we still need other people other men other women 100%. in our children's lives to 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 give them, you know, different perspectives and, and different backgrounds so that even if you're in a community that doesn't fit the label underserved, it doesn't matter. We need people to, to, to reach into the community, whether it's school sports or scouting or boys and girls club or firefighter mentorship just to, to help, you know, it takes a village and, and that's what it, we need to does. do. It does. And we don't want carbon copies of ourselves. I mean, I want my kids to, to, to be better than I. And uh, that, you know, if, if they're only exposed to my viewpoints, to my wife's viewpoints, well, there's so much more out there. So I want them to embrace it. I want them to experience different cultures. I want them to experience different viewpoints. You know, it's like, um, was it Tim Kennedy that was saying that he had this great discussion with his teenage daughter? And how they were completely like diametrically opposing views, but they had a great conversation about it. And I've got like I've got a nephew who's in his early twenties, and you know, politically and our backgrounds and everything, we're we're quite different. And you know, we tease each other about it all the time. But at the same time, we can sit down and have you know, as much of an intellectual conversation about anything as I'm capable of having. And we, we totally appreciate each other's views and, 
And I love the fact that we can do that. And I love my kids seeing that we can, we can like civil discourse is perfectly acceptable, you know, and that's, that's something that we need more of. And we're only going to expose our kids to that by exposing them to more people and more events. And we can only do that with other great community mentors out there and community involvement. You know, it's shocking. We, we were discussing there uh, just a few weeks ago. Um, my kids built garden boxes for um, a program that's uh, for youth housing. And they built these little like raised garden boxes with me, which they love to do. They love doing that stuff, my little girls. Uh, they're great builders. And, uh, you know, they're using the drills and the, you know, power drivers and whole works, right? Like they are right into this. And they asked why we were doing it. And I said, well, there's this program that gives people a place where they can live if they need a better place to live. And these garden boxes will help them grow their food if they choose to grow food or help them beautify it by growing flowers and gives them something to take pride in. And uh, uh, they said, oh, you know, they asked me more about this group. And I said, you know, it's, try it's tough trying to explain it to eight-year-olds, but the shocking thing, even for my wife and I, is that statistically, even in this small town that we're in or that we're on the perimeter of, statistically, there's at least two kids in my kid's school who are homeless. They're couch surfing with a single parent or they're living in their, their vehicle or whatever. I mean, that's horrifying to think of. And an affluent society like Canada, that we still have these issues. So, and you know what? People got to take ownership of things and they've got to understand what's out there. You know, count your blessings and, and help other people achieve theirs. Absolutely. Well, I'm I a total hippie, eh? No, no. But like you said, it's funny because, you know, you talk about, you know, the soldiers and the hippies. Well, I, I kind of see the same parallel with the, the paramedics and the the people who are not well is there mm -hmm. is no better Definitely. advocate for health in this country than the people that watch these morbidly obese Americans die. So the They're doctors, the, the nurses, line. the paramedics, yeah. So it's I see that same thing. Like, you know, the reason why the guy who's taken his fitness so seriously is so passionate about, you know, mental and physical health is not because I'm worried about me, it's I'm worried about you. I see it. Yeah, All these yeah. bags of pills don't fucking work. You end up no. dead at 40, no 50 years old. There's no magic bean. Yeah, so, so I agree with you 100%. Well, kind of coming back onto the military timeline, so you're in the engineers, you start doing you know, explosives and breaching, 9-11 happens. So walk me through what that shift was. And then obviously, you know, I mean, I'm, I don't know if it was big in, in the military, but certainly to the civilian world, we'd never heard the acronym IED and still, until you know, they started blowing up our soldiers. So what was that shift, not only in the military career, but for you specifically with your special skill set? So I remember the day clear as a bell. I was actually, I was a pretty pampered guy. I uh, always was outside of the system, which sounds funny for somebody within the military, but I was very fortunate in that my leadership gave me leeway because they knew I was passionate about what I was doing. And I, I feel like they, they believed that I would perform for them. I'd like to think that I did. So at the time I had some different goals and they allowed me to be doing my fitness in the morning on my own. So I wasn't with my troop or anything. And uh, so I had gone for a run and then I'd hit the gym and I'd come back home to this little place that I rented on base. 
And I was just getting back, ready to go back to work. And I was just cleaning up and I had a dog and I was feeding her, finishing my own breakfast, you know, which was ridiculous, like whole grain bread and egg whites or spinach or something really yummy like that. <laughs> and uh, anyways, I had the television on just to catch a bit of the morning news. And they're talking about this plane that had crashed into one of the towers. And I had assumed like probably 90% of people in the world that it was like a Cessna or something like this. And I was in my, my pants, my combat pants and boots and t-shirt. I hadn't put on my smock yet. And uh, I was feeding the dog. And then I just sort of heard another plane just crash in the towers. And I just peeked into the front room, caught the glimpse on the television and threw the dog's dish down, walked out the front door, grabbed my shirt on the way. Cause I knew like everybody did like we're at war and you know, I'm, like I said, I mean, I'm in Canada and that's, you know, we're a separate country and everything, but we're so closely aligned and what happens to one of us happens to all of us. You know, a lot of people forget. I mean, there's numerous Canadians killed in those towers as well. You know, I want to say it was 23, but I'm not sure. But regardless, these are people that got up and went to work that day when they hugged their kids or kissed their spouse before going out the door, they didn't think it was going to be the last time. And these are just people going to their daily business. And uh, it was pretty disturbing. I went into the regiment. And we were on sort of a summer routine at the time. We we're just coming off of that, like just getting into the big training cycle. And uh, the place was pretty much in shock. Uh, people like, Nobody really knew what to prepare, but everybody started busying themselves with things, you know, checking vehicles, checking equipment, with no direction. And there was, there was sort of a stunned silence over the, over the personnel. And uh, I, one thing that really uh, was uh, awe-inspiring is we actually had a federal employee strike at the time. So all the federal employees on the base, all the civilians, we're on strike. The moment they ha that happened, they all put down their picket signs and went to work because, you know, they're supporting us. They're like a lot of our, like our, our background supporters, our administrators, our, our, our people like, you know, handling movements of vehicles or supplies or whatever. And en masse with no direction, they just got in their cars, showed up at work, strike was over. You know, at least for the time being. And it was, it was impressive to see. And with Canada, we had a really slow response. It was quite shocking how slow it was, in fact, like to get security on our bases, et cetera. But once Afghanistan kicked off, everything started changing. And we went from a military that was very garrison oriented, and a Gara troopers, we used to call it, uh, where, you know, it was funny in a way, in a sad way. I wasn't on Roto Zero because a couple of uh, senior people had branded me as having no loyalty. So uh, because I had applied for Kansas and then I'd failed out. So I was back in the unit. But, but that, was, that was the inside track on, on it. I was asked by, to go into one of the troops that was going to be slated for deployment on Roto Zero and Sergeant Major. No, he's got no loyalty to the Corps. But the funny thing was, is when the guys deployed, 
you know, troops would be coming out of the field and there would be the sergeant major or somebody and, you know, all over them for their, for their boots or their blousing or their pants or whatever. And because they hadn't made that diametric shift from a, a virtual peacetime military to being in war. And there is some harsh lessons learned. Um, not, not the, 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 the least of which was, as you were saying, like the, the new threats that were out there, the IED threats, the insurgent style of warfare. You don't really appreciate it. Like, I think we look at it after having been there. We, we still, like, we admire the Second World War veterans, for instance, so much. But so many of them would say to us, but at least we knew who the enemy was. And, you know, so, I mean, there's, there's good points and bad points for, for each battle. Um, yeah, it was a huge shift in mentality. And we really had to wrap ourselves around uh, uh, new threats. The IED threat was obviously off the hook. So I had just recently, maybe with eight months before, become an IED team lead. And so right away, our training ramped up again. But here we were, Canadian military, peacetime military. We had these robots, ID robots from the 60s that would invariably shake themselves apart while they're going downrange. So that was a big obstacle. So they had to fire up new procurements, new equipment, a steep learning curve. And we started losing people in the, the first deployments. Uh, and then... It's, but we weren't really in the thick of battle so much at that point. Our special operations were, some of our forward infantry were, like our snipers and stuff. But for the most part, as a battle group, we were, I wouldn't, like, not in a safe environment, but not in an, an extreme high-risk environment until uh, 06 when we moved from the Kabul area down into the Kandahar district, and Canada took over that, that area. And that was where we really started war fighting. Um, and that was, that was some rough times. It was the, it's an odd thing to say to people, but it was the best and worst times of my military career where you had to raise to the challenge. Uh, we lost some wonderful people. We had an insane casualty rate. Uh, my squadron of combat engineers and the company of infantry that we were attached to, I believe that we are the first since the Korean War to become combat ineffective due to casualties. Um, so we had, we had burned through our, our 10% reinforcement within the first couple of weeks because our, our casualties were so high. Uh, we had a massive operation, Canada's biggest combat operation, I believe, since the Second War. Uh, it was Operation Medusa, where we went and started clearing out the Panjway district. Uh, and again, tough lessons, tough lessons learned. Um, but I am proud to say that I served with some amazing, amazing leaders. I think that these times, times like that, they make the, like, the best come out of the ground. And, and they're moved into these positions. The imposters sort of fade away because uh, there's leaders and there's people in leadership positions. And we had leaders. The leaders were now exposed and they were, they led. They were fantastic. And we saw that, again, the best and the worst of people. Uh, and it's, it's interesting to see, see yourself stripped bare of comforts 
until live for 50, 60 days, sleeping beside your vehicle in a little ranger blanket and just doing your daily tasks for us. It was going on ID calls and ordinance calls all the time. And you see some horrific things that you deal with, with um, a weird joie de vivre where you're like, you're so engaged with your team and you've got a dark sense of humor and you're so mission dedicated and just dedicated to one another. In the heat of the moment, you don't think about the strategic vision. You think about your brother or sister to your left and right. And that, you know, that's why you do what you do. And that's how we look after each other. And it was really, it was one of the, that's why I say it was one of the greatest times of my life, but also one of the worst, because you see horrific things. Uh, you deal with losing some great people. Um, but yeah, that was a real baptism by fire for the Canadian forces. But the, the, that year, uh, the, my tour, the tour previous to mine, and then the next several. And it wasn't until, I mean, I'll tell you how bad it was. We had so little equipment over there. We were actually welding steel plates onto civilian tractors and trucks and stuff to use in the assault in Operation Medusa and lining the interiors with sandbags and stuff. And um, it was then that the, the public started really realizing, like, hey, we need to equip these guys. And our government in 06 to really took over and got us some new equipment and, and really got us, like, you know, really catapulted us forward in capacity and capability uh, until Canada pulled out of there. And uh, I think we really hit above our weight. Um, sadly, we lost a lot of lessons and uh, we came back to a society that when I look at it with a detached view, I can just imagine what it was like for the American Vietnam veterans. Uh, we weren't in battle as long or as horrifically, but they came back to a society that didn't understand them. Ours was more appreciative, I believe. Our society really flew the flag around us. But nobody was inconvenienced. None of these people were at war. When you, you look back historically in World War II, where everybody was doing things for the boys at the front, they were rationing their food, they were recycling their tires, they were gathering scrap metal and stuff. Everybody was engaged in the war effort. And we came back to people getting upset with the Starbucks barista because there's too much foam in their mochaccino. You know, so it's just like, so I, I think that that was a great a great view of the differences in the world. Uh, and then after that, I was retained in the army for an extra year before I went to special operations. And then again, that was a whole dynamic change, uh, different way of operating. It seemed much more common sense to me, much more people oriented to me, lighter, faster. Uh, it's just different. It's not better, it's different traits. And uh, none of the soft guys can do what they do without the backing of the conventional military. And they really worked with the whole force mechanism in Afghanistan very well. Um, but yeah, uh, Canada pulled out of Afghanistan. Uh, special operations continued 
and transitioned over to Iraq where we became trainers. And then um, that grew into a whole thing where all of a sudden we wound up with two, 3,000 people, conventional military, et cetera, over in Iraq engaged in training. Um, and we've sort of lost our identity as warfighters again. Uh, so it's, it's been, I think it's been really tough on a lot of the military, a lot of the soldiers. And then when you look at the, the things that, that influence them when they come home, they've had these grand adventures. They come home and I think a lot of them struggle to find their feet under them again. They're looking for a new adventure. They're looking for camaraderie. They're looking for loyalty from their government and from their leadership. And remember now we've removed risk. We've removed discomfort. So those things are in short supply. I think a lot of people feel abandoned. Uh, not sort of my interesting journey through the military. I went from the early 90s in the reserves to the mid-90s where I went in the regular army. We used to call the 90s the dark, decade of darkness because the military was so neglected. Engaged in Bosnia and disaster relief and stuff, but we weren't doing any real war fighting. Early 2000s, September 11th, the day that changed the world again, thrust back into the fire. We fought through that. I think the Canadians like, and all of our allies, of course, performed admirably. They did things. I remember I was really flattered, actually. I wrote my brother a letter. My brother was engaged with, uh, like he was working for a member of parliament. And he showed a member of parliament this email that uh, he had gotten. And uh, the guy quoted me in the house, which is kind of cool. That I said that, you know, when the history books are written, Canadians will look back this day knowing that the soldiers performed as admirably as they did in any war. And the acts of heroism, we struggle with our Canadian identity. And we have not awarded uh, Canadian Victoria Cross for any of the actions in Afghanistan. There's been a lot of public pressure to not just to blindly hand it to somebody, but it's just that there were so many acts of tremendous valor that we, we, need to, we need to embrace those. And I think embracing those is a way of grabbing a hold of that discomfort and grabbing a hold of the ugly parts of humanity and realizing why sometimes we have to be tough and why sometimes instead of equality, we need to look for fairness because uh, the world can be a not nice place. And this is part of that broken window theory, you know, boys and girls club, etc. Only it's on a global scale. We can go and help one country towards democracy or towards better freedoms for their people. Then maybe like we're making a difference. So I think, you know, there's been a huge societal shift, historical shift and military shift in Canada throughout my career. My father, looking back over my 26 year career, what he said when I was eight years in saying I'd seen more change in eight years than he'd seen in 38. Yeah, I think I was part of a chapter that. I mean, there's just so much change in the world. I think it's. It's incredible. I was so honored to be a part of it and to be accepted by my peers. And 
yeah, it almost moves me to tears uh, when I think of this stuff. It's, uh, it's an amazing, amazing experience. And even for the bad parts of it, I would never treat it in the world. What I think, you know, what you report as you parallel with Vietnam, um, you know, when London was being bombed in the UK, our war was on our doorstep. When you look at Vietnam, you know, hippies were dancing around at Woodstock and while our you know, mainly boys were being slaughtered in, in Vietnam. And I think that's the issue is, you know, when, when you're detached from it, as you said, and there's no suffering and you're not connected to that conflict, especially in that one where, you know, some were signing up and some were conscripted. They didn't have a choice to go. They were sent and then they would come back and, you know, I've had people on here that were from that, that um, era and the stories. Like one, Major James Capers, who was one of the very first Marine raiders, um, I forgot that right. No, recon. Sorry, recon. Um, he was wounded and was lying on the sidewalk at the airport and someone came and urinated on him. Lying on the you know, street, you know? It's, it's, it's ironic because when I first joined, when I joined the reserves, we were at a point in the Canadian society where I, I remember advisors saying, guys, don't wear your uniforms around downtown. Like, like change when you get to work. And there's people who would spit at you and throw things at you and curse you out. Now, flash forward a few years and after September 11th, people are all of a sudden like, you're standing security someplace. Somebody drops off a cold soft drink for you or, or you know, people just, you know, me always uncomfortable, thank you for your service. And, you know, I always, I love what Matt Best says, you know, it's like, no, thank you for my service because it was like such a great experience, such an honor. You know, but it's, it's, yeah, it's really like that whole thing has changed so much. And then Vietnam's interesting too, because some of the people that went over there, they were fighting to give freedoms to people that they didn't have in their own country, you know? So it's sort of, yeah, war is a, a, a strange, strange beast. And I'm definitely not a war hawk, but at the same time, I do embrace the saying that war, you know, war is an ugly, horrible thing, but not so ugly and horrible as a man that thinks that nothing is worth fighting for. And, and security at a national or even a local level is not something that you can implement when the world around you is falling apart and the devil is on your doorstep. It's too late at that point. You need to influence it like at the farthest reaches. And, you know, that brings us to where we are now, where... I'm the old man and, you know, we're back with the cold war and I'm the broken down veteran who's looking at these young guys. And, you know, I try not to be that guy that's, that's critical of the military. I don't think it's ever the soldier's fault, uh, but I, I don't, I don't hesitate to, to be critical of, of, our government, I think that's what democracy is about, is we always have to demand better uh, of one another and of our, our our political leadership. And yeah, so like I say, now, now I'm that old guy. I'm the old broken guy. I try to do my part still. I try to stay engaged. I do some talks about mental health and brain injury. And uh, yeah, I think if it can help one person, then I'm doing something of uh, benefit. And I think once you stop doing things for other people, then that's when you, you really, you really die sort of, you know, like 
Like nobody is here for their for their own existence, and it's it's a it's a it's a genetic fact throughout the animal world. We are here not for our own survival. We are here for the survival of our genetics and our species. So it is incumbent upon all of us to make the world a little bit better for the next person, and we can't lose sight of that. Absolutely. Well, I want to get to the mental health and TBI element but just before we do because i mean rarely is someone on here whose expertise is i i ied excuse me um yeah we keep going down garden paths no but i love it this is this is what i absolutely adore about these comments this is a two human beings engaged and being present and having this natural conversation without stepping over each other the whole time um but what was that metamorphosis what was that battle between people like yourself and these extremists that were laying these IEDs that were taking so many of our men and women's lives. Well, you know what? You want to talk about getting knocked off your high horse. Um, these are people that some of them were wearing plastic water bottles as shoes, and nothing went to waste in the Afghan culture. Like they used everything, and they used a lot of our own things against us. <laughs> One guy. One guy uh, that was working with us in 05, I remember him coming into where our, our shop, our troop was, uh, the IED troop. And uh, if you could call it that, we were like two sections. But anyways, he, uh, he come in and he said, did you notice that they're changing all the washers and dryers over at the laundry on base? And we were like, yeah, I sort of didn't pay him any mind. And he said, you know how many switches and how much wiring is in each one of those? And we kind of went, Oh shit. Like nobody had tweaked to it, but this guy had. And now this, you know, this guy, Ricky, is like, he is on a whole different plane intellectually. Like he is light years ahead of what I could ever be. He's a genius, this guy. Um, yeah. So, you know, that was a great example. And, and we would go high technology and they'd go low. So we brought in new like electronic warfare and jammers, et cetera. You know, these big mystical machines that would block these signals that is, oh, they couldn't use remote control devices and stuff. But I was proud to say that that we learned lessons quick enough that we said, you know what, um, this is wonderful, but you know what they're going to do is they're going to go low tech. And they did. They went to pressure plates made with made with uh, saw blades and 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 disposed of batteries all hooked up together in a circuit and they went to um when they did want to do a remote control ied they would just take an antenna and put it out you know a couple hundred feet and have it wired all the way back to the ied so it didn't matter about our electronic counters and they're they're very clever i mean i remember one time driving through kabul and these kids would come up to us with different radios and you see them spinning the dial on the radios. And I was sort of like, that's weird. And then I twigged to it. And I'm like, they're figuring out what frequencies are live and dead around us. Like, it's just, it's just remarkable how ingenious these people were. And it, I think it really knocked, you know, to use the term empire, it really knocked the, the, the Western, you know, technologically advanced free capitalist society back on its heels because these people were ingenious. Um, they were very adaptive. 
Uh, some of them were just great fighters. They were great in their style of warfare. That being said, they also had a lot of fighters who were practically drafted because they were either forced into it for money or they were forced into it to keep their family surviving or whatever. And then there was also, again, it was also a proxy war where we were seeing weapons from different nations that were mysteriously showing up brand new. You know, so it was, it was really interesting. And then, you know, you, you had to realize, too, these are the people that had, that had fought against the Russians. And we are now fighting people who were from the Mujahideen that the West had helped train and give them material to. And now everything was switched 180 degrees. So it was, again, as that, that weird sort of movie, you know, set almost where you're, where you're just like, is this, like, this is almost surreal. Like this is actually happening. And sometimes you'd take apart an IED and you'd just be, you'd be blown away by their technology, by their resourcefulness. And we saw everything from, from machine soldered circuitry in IEDs to homemade explosives made with a stick on a plastic tarp in a mud hut, you know, using just everyday like fertilizers and chemicals. So the, the difference in complexity of the IEDs and emplacement, the way that they use them as, um, as part of ambushes was, uh, was fascinating. And it became a, became a bit of a cat and mouse game. Um, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's just, it, it was quite honestly, it was mind-blowing. Uh, and it's, it was interesting that we really had to take things back several years. And I remember teaching an awareness class, a threat awareness class, and I said, look, like your IED response when somebody hits an IED, it's not new. Like, this is an ambush. So we have to act accordingly. Get people off of the X, fight on the ground that you choose to fight from, not where the enemy decides. And there's a few changes to that, but really, like, they had just put a modern twist on thousand-year-old warfare. So it was, yeah, it had its challenges, but it was also, like, from a historic or a strategic or even tactical perspective, it was... It's an interesting study in what can be done. And, you know, it's, it's funny because we, we look at how technology uh, uh, travels around the world. Well, this was no different. And you could see different fighting styles and techniques and IED methodologies going from, you know, the, 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 the border of Afghanistan and Pakistan and then up through Afghanistan and up through the Middle East and all the way up into Chechnya you can see these patterns emerging like two-way streams of technology and communications and material. It, it was amazing. They were so adaptive. You know, we were bigger and stronger, but they were weaker and quicker and more adaptive. So it's a very sad way that Afghanistan ended. And I think it's left a lot of scars on a lot of people. Um, but yeah, it was quite quite the transition in our mindset here in Canada, and I think around the world, all of the Allied militaries really had to change things up. 
Well, thank you for that perspective. I mean, it's such a unique lens that you have and, and it's very easy to paint the Afghan, you know, extremists, um, as these, you know, simple donkey leading folk that are wearing sandals and just happen to outsmart the US military or the British military or the Canadian military. What, which is again, you know, book by its cover, a complete kind of caricature of what you were actually up against so to hear the resilience of some of these fighters whether we agree with you know what they were actually doing mm-hmm. or not um it's a very very you know unique perspective especially like you said with the washing machine like oh my god that's one of those things after the like you know face palm like why didn't i think about that oh but, yeah i mean it totally. made yeah i mean it's incredible well through your career you've talked about you know obviously the engineers and you then you're doing breaching teaching breaching you've got the IEDs. so i'm assuming you're around explosions at that point talk to me about when you started noticing changes within yourself and or if it was your family from the outside looking in noticing changes in yourself yeah it's quite a quite a journey so you know you get so used to being on adrenaline and going hard all the time. So I was so, so uh, fortunate in my career that uh, there wasn't a lot of downtime. Like I wasn't sitting around troop stores, sharpening shovels and polishing my boots a lot, uh, which is good because I was a really a horrible soldier when it came to things like that. <laughs> but um, yeah, I was fortunate with a lot of deployments and a lot of challenges. And uh, it was when I went to SOF, uh, so it's an interesting the way that Canadian soft operates. And I was so the team that I was with in particular, although our explosive specialists are an asset used throughout the command, we were mainly assigned to the counterterrorism uh, uh, unit and, and stratagem. Uh, so we do a lot of breaching. We would do, uh, you know, everything from mud walls, a la Afghanistan from outside to inside to um, internal breaching for, you know, our own, our own structures, our downtown, Ottawa, Toronto, high rises, et cetera. And, and, you know, that whole mentality in itself is something that's evolved over the last 30 years where, you know, we had a hostage taking at the Turkish embassy in the early nineties in Ottawa. And we didn't really have anything for years. And we had this thing, the Toronto 18, uh, was uh, a mass plot uh, for IEDs around Toronto. And, you know, we had the Afghan war, et cetera. So, you know, domestic threats have changed just as in the U.S., just as in England. Uh, only we've been fortunate we haven't had a mass terror event here in Canada. So there's, you know, all of these things come into play on why we trained the way that we did. So we had to have the feasibility to be able to breach any structure or vessel or, or 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 a stronghold that an enemy may have or in order to gain purchase in one of those in order to extricate hostages or non-combatants. So ton of breaching. Previous to that, conventional army, I mean, we'd done conventional explosives, of course, sometimes huge explosions, but we were we were moved quite a bit further back. Uh, so people around the world, explosive specialists around the world, we always were aware of overpressure and its risks, but there's so much of it in warfare from aerial bombardment, close air support, et cetera, 
in Canada, we've got our 25 millimeter guns on our labs, we've got artillery, we've got explosions from like, you know, just whatever conventional explosives you may be using, recoil of weapons, 50 caliber machine guns, etc. That's one set of exposures that has its own impacts. Like it's certainly detrimental um, for a career. But then when I went to special operations, uh, we were basically always training. And we did a lot of live training where we'd be breaching doors, breaching windows, walls, et cetera. Uh, you know, because we were always on response. Uh, we always had to be able to provide the federal government this, this capability. So when you look at it, we always use this factor of uh, three to 3.5 pounds per square inch of overpressure, which was what science, uh, which turned out to be archaic and, and sort of wrong, told us was a safe exposure limit. But really those exposures were for hearing protection as much as anything else and, and organ protection. But what research began showing, and it actually started off with NFL football players, oddly enough, is that, so what the NFL found is that it didn't have to be a concussive incident. They started encountering more and more players that had chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which I, I've put in my high school drop of terms as mad cow disease for people, CTE. And it creates huge capacity and capability changes personality changes, et cetera, changes hormonal levels within the brain, et cetera. Um, then it's a horrible disease. It's fatal. It can only be diagnosed after death. Um, you can say that somebody may or may not have it. They're working new technologies, imaging, et cetera, to understand it more and more. But this is what the NFL is up against. They started studying it. What they found was it didn't matter how many concussions a player did or didn't have. What made the difference in their prognosis of traumatic brain injury or CTE was the number of hits that they had taken. So those sub-concussive hits, and those sub-concussive impacts, simple translation into overpressure from explosives. So we'd be teaching on courses, we'd be teaching breachers or doing training events with breachers. And you know, you'd be approximate to the guy firing the charge. And these guys, like they're, it, we're inside a building. So, you know, you fire a very small charge and, you know, these are precise charges. The guys, they're fantastic at what they do. And, you know, maybe you're blowing a, a door off just to gain entry into a, a room, a, a door that was barricaded. So, you know, you're, you're quite close to the charge. Well, as an instructor, I've got to be right next to the guy firing that charge. So maybe let's say you've got 20 students on a course. Well, that's fine, but each of them doing one type of charge, one of, one of each charge per day, maybe if each student is exposed to two or three charges as, as an instructor now, divided by the different number of instructors we might have, I might've eaten 20 charges that day. So we started noticing how messed up we were and we started twigging to it and talking to our allies in the U.S. who are noticing the same thing. They just started launching some research. And one particular day, my two bosses uh, came to my hotel room. We were staying at this training venue. And they said, let's go for dinner. And uh, we all felt horrible. And I remember remarking, I said, my balls hurt from so much overpressure, which is like, it's hilarious, but it's also not hilarious. Like when you think like, 
how much overpressure do you have to eat in a day that you not just feel foggy and concussed, but your balls hurt from just, you know, the subconcussive impact of multiple charges. So we started looking at it more and more and we realized that no, um, breachers and high caliber weapons, et cetera, are having the same impact on soldiers, policemen as the hits in the NFL. And there's no different for paramedics and firefighters, you know, the blunt force impacts, et cetera, that they have those exposures and they accumulate over a lifetime. So it's hard to differentiate for myself when I really started noticing I was going downhill because I was in an extremely high stress job in a position where I was always on the go. Um, I hindsight being what it was, uh, I started becoming shorter tempered with my family. I was having trouble with my wife and I felt like I was always looking for a rush. At the same time, I started having panic attacks. No, I didn't know there were panic attacks at the time. I was I actually thought I was having some sort of cardiac event. And this is just before I started raising my hand saying, I've, I've got to leave. Like I messed up. So yeah, I started having what I thought were some sort of cardiac event, uh, and I'd wake up and it'd feel like somebody's sitting on my chest, just unable to breathe. And I'd be dizzy when I got up out of bed or if the, the if it was dark, my vestibular senses, I had no balance. Um, things were harder for me. I wasn't coordinated. I was never tremendously coordinated, but this was like a whole new level. Um, and, uh, those like should have been big indicators. Uh, but eventually I was at work. I remember one day um, I walked into the med station and I said, uh, I looked at the secretary who's uh, like, she, this girl's a genius. Uh, she's, she's moved on to bigger and better things. But uh, she, she looked at me and she said, you need to see the doctor. Like she could tell I was messed up. It, I looked like a drug addict basically coming in. And I was, I was hooked on adrenaline and endorphins. And I, uh, I wasn't sleeping. I was sleeping a few hours sporadically at night, a few hours, and then getting up and going to this high stress, high performance job. And I seriously, like my heart was racing. I could only liken it to what a, a, somebody would be like on cocaine. Um, yeah, and it was just, and it was a million miles an hour or nothing. Like I would sit down and I'd fall asleep, but then if I had to go to bed, I was going a million miles an hour again and couldn't shut down, et cetera. And mental health-wise, I was just going down the toilet. Um, so I saw the doctor and they started looking at me and saying, like, you've got to take a knee, uh, which I didn't really accept really well i guess you could say at the same time i was now a mental health shit show for lack of a better word i was a total mess for multiple reasons which i'll i'll get into so anyways um i was further diagnosed by physiotherapy which is amazing because all of the million dollar piece of equipment we have and the i tell people this all the time if you're in doubt go see an experienced physiotherapist because all of the scans and imagery you're going to get are going to basically confirm their diagnosis. So even to this day, um, I get blurred vision, especially when I'm tired. I'll get double vision at times. 
Uh, again, my balance coordination. When I was really bad, I had aphasia where I would substitute the wrong word sometimes in a conversation, or I would just struggle for a word. Uh, and mental health-wise, I was a mess. Um, the hallmark moment for me where I really accepted that I had to walk away was I went in town with my little girls and I was really trying to keep things going with my wife. We were not doing well. And in my head, she had changed a lot and wasn't supportive. But in fact, that was a completely distorted view because uh, I was a real ass. <laughs> um, so I had taken the girls into my little girls into the big city to do some Christmas shopping. And uh, we were shopping for gifts for, for mommy. And uh, they are wonderful, really well behaved, everything's good. So here I am, I've got a brain injury. I'm in a busy, busy shopping mall at Christmas, million lights and sounds, a million people and all the rest, not conducive to uh, repairing myself. And we're driving home and it's a snowstorm, of course, and the wipers are going and my little girls are in the back. They're overjoyed, we've had a wonderful day. And they're singing Christmas carols, off-key, wrong words, full words, stop their lungs. And I'm singing along with them. And what they couldn't see is I'm looking in the mirror at them in the back seas. I got tears streaming down my face. And it's still difficult for me to say to this day, I had a plan that I was going to get home with them. And... I'd get them in the house, we'd do hot chocolates, whole thing. And then my wife was working. I didn't know roughly when she was going to be home. So a little while, maybe 20 minutes, half hour before she got home, I was going to go into a field. Uh, and I was, you know, those giant round bales of hay all snow covered in this field. I was going to take my cell phone and my shotgun. I was going to call 911 and just say, look, this is where I am. You've got a body to pick up. And I was going to shoot myself. And I would say that what saved me, quite honestly, was, you know, kids are amazing. And they view their parents, at least in their younger days, they view their parents as superheroes. So, like, I call my little girls my angels. And they are. They're my guardian angels. And quite honestly, um, it was that I couldn't do that to them and their mom, my wife. And uh, it, was, it was really then that everything turned around. I mean, I had already been assigned mental health, uh, like a social worker for counseling. And I didn't go to these appointments. And sometimes I would drive to the appointment. And I would be parked outside and then I'd pick up my phone and just say, like, something's come up, I can't make it. And then I started, so at this point, I started going to the appointments. And the first several, I didn't say, we could make small talk all day, but I didn't really open myself up to anything. I think that's hard for, for people. I think it's especially hard for men uh, and especially in our lines of work you know, first responders, military, et cetera. I think that's very, very challenging because, you know, there is that um, machismo that we've got. Uh, so it's very, very difficult. Um, 
but I slowly, yeah, I slowly started opening up and I'll tell you, it made a world of difference. So between the mental health and the, the brain injury, what a lot of doctors told me was the perfect, was the perfect storm. Um, you know, when you break your ankle, you can carry on through things. I've done things with broken bones all the time. You can force yourself to carry on. You can work through that. You know that. I know that. We've probably all done it, right? An injury is something that you can and You can use your mind, the most powerful tool that we have, to get yourself through that. But when that's the part that's broken, you can't use your broken mind as a crutch for the rest of you to carry on. It can't support they can't support you at that point. So that's where you need to be able to reach out, reach out for help. And I, I'm, I try to be very open to these conversations because quite honestly, like we do have a crisis. We have a crisis in our first responders and our military, I think more than anybody else in society, which is ridiculous. So we did some studies in Canada where we looked at the suicide rates of military by civilian and they said well the suicide rates aren't any higher and i'm like okay cool that's great for public consumption love it however these are people that are screened these are people that have passed mental health tests drug testing they're in good shape they've got meals provided to them they make a decent salary they've got a secure environment they've got a great peer group they should be far lower on that spectrum. And they're not. So I want to normalize these conversations and let people know, you know what? First of all, you need to recognize the signs of brain injury. That's huge. And it's uh, particularly, I think it's, it's reachable by reaching for children, by making our kids safer and understanding the risks that your kids are at in different sports. People assume that these groups are trying to shut down football or hockey or whatever. It's not the case at all. They're just trying to make it safer and make people aware. So I work with uh, Concussion Legacy Foundation here in Canada. It was started in the U.S. by uh, Chris Nwicki, uh, ex-NFLer, ex-WWE guy. Uh, Canada's chapter is by Tim Fleischer, who's an uh, ex-CFL uh, player, I believe four-time Grey Cup winner. Uh, there's chapters in Australia and the U.K. now. Great organization, really working with the science community to advance technologies and treatment methods as well. They provide um, peer networks and peer solutions and education for children, for schools, etc. So we had a girl here named Rowan Stringer. And unfortunately, she was a female rugby player. And I, I'm going to mess this up. My apologies to the family. The parents are so brave. They lost Rowan uh, in a girls rugby game. I want to say she was 13 or so at the time. And she had had a concussive injury and uh, she hadn't healed up. And they were in a tournament. And uh, so she went back in for the next game. She didn't tell her parents or her coaches that she was still hurting. And, but she confided in a couple of her friends. So she had a second impact injury. And that poor girl, she died on the field. So this is the importance of these things. And when you look at your brain, it affects so much. And when you know, brain injuries not just lead to death in, in, in the cases like Rowan's, but there's also things like uh, uh, just mental health, the incidence of, of uh, 
have uh, dementias, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, et cetera, grossly inflated among those with brain injuries, subconcussive or concussive exposures, uh, the whole mental health system, suicide, domestic abuse, everything uh, is also intertwined with that. Um, it's, it's, it's shocking how deep the reach is of those injuries. And then the impact of that on mental health, which, as I said, I would, I would come around to. The double impact is that right now with our first responders and with our militaries, we lack appropriate social mechanisms and treatment mechanisms for them. So if we go back to the late 70s, early 80s, a lot of American police officers were Vietnam veterans. And so there's a bit of a mental health crisis at the time. There's some great psychology books written about it. And at the time when there's a police shooting right away, we would go in and we'd remove the officer's firearm and they would be taken off active duty, pending investigation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And all of the people, all the professionals in mental health are saying, this is horrible because it looks like you're demonizing them before there's been any investigation and you're really removing them from their peer group and their support group, their fellow officers and their chain of command. But 40 years later, we're still doing the exact same thing with our law enforcement professionals. We're doing the exact same thing with their military. And, and it, it's, it's just extremely shocking to me. So now we're in this position where would you believe that most, oper- most of what is diagnosed as PTSD or operational stress injuries, it isn't linked to things that they see in the line of duty. It is linked to the, what they, is, uh, they call a, uh, a morale injury where they've got a lack of faith and a lack of trust in the system. They feel abandoned by their superiors, by their peers, and by their government. And what a sin that is. So we're not only injuring these people in the first place, but then we're, we're removing them. We're not providing effective support mechanisms for them to get better, but that is then a sense of abandonment, which spins them further downhill. So when you apply all of that to brain injuries and the mental health intertwined, yeah, I was in a pretty dark place. And when I outed my injuries, and was like, I need to take a knee. There was some confusion, I would say, about what to do with me. So I was removed from the special operations community and posted back to the army at headquarters. So now I'm outside my support network. I've taken a massive dump in pay, which was later rectified to a degree. And I felt like vilified for all of this, which didn't help me at all. Uh, We hit the pandemic and the mental health clinic that runs at our military medical clinic was closed in the, and you would go to report in there uh, saying like, I need immediate treatment. And there was a sign posted on the door saying, just go home and call this 1-800 number. And it was like, you really expect people to present themselves the second time. I wonder what the incidence rate on that is. And then something that we never really fully examined is that how many people that were diagnosed with PTSD or OSI as a result of the war in Afghanistan? Oh, this guy was in this ID strike. He's been messed up since then, but they never got checked for brain injury. 
So they're giving them the one side of the treatment, but the other side of the treatment isn't taking place. So they're always tired. They're always getting headaches, always blurred vision. Their awareness, social awareness, spatial awareness, vestibular awareness is all off. They can't be treated with mental health care. So there's my long diatribe of those injuries and my own journey through it. I won't say that I'm better. Well, I will say that I'm better. I will not say that I'm cured. I still have to take a knee sometimes. My wife calls my sleep my medicine. I have to front end load when I, we're going to go, if we're going to go to somebody's birthday celebration or go to a sporting event or something, I need to like get rest for a couple nights before I need to make sure I eat really well. I need to rest that day because I need, I going to assume a full sensory load and e- even a busy day of errands will dummy me now. And I, I love to be active. So I keep hitting the wall of that threshold. Uh, it's difficult, but hopefully we're making progress. And, you know, you're the forum you provided, my long-winded diatribe on this whole thing. There's incredible science out there. There's incredible uh, dietary changes, supplementation, et cetera, that can aid in the journey to health. People got to look after each other. And the system needs to look after its people. The system is the people. Uh, They are supposed to be a symbiotic relationship there. We can't view people as a product, but we are. Well, firstly, again, thank you. That wasn't long at all. That was what was needed to explain your journey. Um, (laughs) But you've also illustrated something that's really layered through the six years that I've been immersed in these conversations, which is, as you touched on, the perfect storm. So you have childhood trauma, which we didn't really touch on in this conversation yet, and I'll open the door for that if you retroactively can attribute that. But so many of us wearing uniforms have that element, and I think it's one of the reasons why we're drawn this way. Um, you have the brain injury, which you know causes, amongst other things, demyelination of the, the nerve sheath. 100%. And then you have sleep deprivation that causes demyelination of the nerve sheath. So, you know, you've got a double-edged sword there. Then you've absolutely got organizational betrayal, which I think is behind so much added compounding amplification, you know, of the stresses. And then you throw in some relationship issues. Um, You know, you have that perfect storm. And I think one thing is so powerful and really is just really solidified my understanding of some of the mindsets that people get when they are about to or sadly complete suicide is that distorted perspective and when you hear people say oh suicide is selfish think about your kids or whatever that sometimes luckily is a glimmer of that still in that person that saves them and a lot of people here have thought of their kids had a phone call whatever it was and that was just enough to tip that balance again but when we talk about red flags, the real red flag that seems to happen over and over again is if you are at a point where you believe that you are a burden to your family, there's your sign. That's, that's, uh, that's yeah, I, from speaking from my own experience and the conversations I've had with others since I've been on my own journey, um, I think you... Like you encapsulated that perfectly. Like that's like right on the head. 
Yeah, when you start viewing yourself as worthless or burdensome or that you've not made a difference, um, and I, I described it to one person, I said, you know, like your life is like a match, right? Like while you're living, and this is a sad thing about society, we don't get to, we don't get to attend our own funerals and hear the eulogies, um, but it, uh, it's, it's like a match. Like while you're holding a match and it's burning and you've got that flame there, it's keeping you and maybe one or two other people in a dark room. It's showing some hope and shedding some light. And they might even be close enough they can feel the warmth. But you don't really realize the impact of that until the match goes out. And then all of the people in the peripheral space, in the other rooms, etc., there will be smoke. They'll be able to smell it. They will breathe it in. And people that are three rooms over will, will smell that match has been extinguished. And everything all of a sudden seems colder and more dark to everybody. Now, even though it was a barely perceptible amount of heat and light and energy, when it's gone, it impacts more people than you would ever have thought. And that's what people need to realize about their lives is there's always somebody that you've touched. And I had a, a great pleasure. I did a, a crisis communications course with some great, you know, it used to be called hostage negotiation, but it's more accurately crisis communicators course with some great, great uh, uh, people from, uh, from the London Met. And uh, they, we talked about suicide. And uh, I 100% agree, like looking back 10 years before at these lessons I had done on this course, I 100% agree that the humanizing of the person and seeing, like actually seeing the person and knowing that they have been seen and that they're viewed as a person, as a human, is what saves their lives. So they had studied this bridge, and it might have been the Golden Gate Bridge. I don't remember what the bridge was, to tell you the truth, but there are the record number of jumpers from this bridge. And they watched all the surveillance footage of people that jumped and people that didn't. And the common denominator for those that didn't is somebody said something, even if it was just a, hey, dude, what are you doing? Or are you okay? Or bad day, dude. Like, just that recognition. So... It sounds really cheesy, and here I am back to my hippie self. But you know that when you when you you're a little bit more patient with somebody, when you, when you give the cashier at the checkout a, a sympathetic smile or a, tell her to have a great day, and she pays it forward to the next person, or or when you recognize somebody who's homeless living on the street, like you don't know what that person is going through, and a little bit of kindness goes a long way. And those simple acts can really have a much deeper impact than you'd ever believe. And while there's a lot of people that need correction, and we need to be able to stand up to people who are doing things with nefarious intent, there's a lot of people that are just lost and they feel unseen and unheard. And I think just seeing them, showing them that, they, that they've been seen and that they matter just giving somebody a cup of coffee on a cold day, man, you can turn their whole day around. How simple of an act is that? You know, and if you were told, if you were told that 
if you if you give two dollars to this person so that they can get a cup of hot chocolate or a cup of coffee, you will save their life. You would scoff at that, but you would also think, well, if there's a chance, then I'll do it. And that's that's how simple it is, really. So we need to normalize these conversations. We have to understand more about the brain, protect our most important, like our vital safety net known as our first responders. We need to protect them from brain injury and from mental health issues. And we need to understand it and appreciate it, appreciate the impacts and we need to respond accordingly. But turning a blind eye to it, while on the at first blush may seem cost effective or we understand this person's hurting but the system needs to go on, yeah, but by not helping that person, the system will collapse. Like when the other workers see that you've gone out of your way to ensure this person is taken care of, you have now just bought loyalty from those people because you've got to be loyal down the chain as well as up the chain. And that's how the upstream fish gets the loyalty from the downstream fish, you know, is, is provide, you know, like I said, that, that, that hand up. Yeah. Absolutely. No, I couldn't agree with you more. It's funny, the the book I wrote about a year and a half ago, I, I stole a phrase from a Linkin Park song, One More Light, and sadly, their mm. singer, Chester Bennington, took his own life. But the, it goes, who cares if a light goes out in a sky of a thousand stars? I do. And and so the, the cover actually was a candle and the wick was a person. But just taking your analogy for a second, the people in the room where the candle is lit know that light. The candle itself maybe doesn't realize how many people it's positively affecting until it's too late, until that match goes out, until that light goes out. And But understanding that every single one of us is worthy. And like you said, just being seen. And Kevin Hines is one of the guys that jumped off the bridge. And he was on this show. And he survived, one of the very few people that survived. And he says, you know, obviously incredibly moving speech that he does, I was there on the edge just praying someone would see me, praying someone would talk to me. And a car stopped. And I think if I got the story right, they asked him to take a picture of them. They stopped or they walked by and then they just moved on. And he's, you know, eyes full of tears. And so then he just basically turns around and jumps off, you know. So it's it's that simple to be seen. And even if you circle all the way around to what we talked about at the beginning, the tyranny versus the community, it's also being seen. If you look at the mental health of these tyrants, th there is none. <laughs> they are broken people. That one hundred percent. So mental health is at the core of everything, and kindness and compassion is the solution. You know, it's uh, it's funny because um, as I engaged and as I started speaking about my own journey, and the first time that I that I really outed in a in a public talk. Uh, my mental health struggles, their response was so overwhelming. Um, and you, it is shocking. It is absolutely shocking. And I hope that anybody that is having struggles will remember this one thing. It is absolutely shocking how many people have those same struggles. Because there have been people that I looked up to and admired that have since come up to me and said, you know what, thanks, thanks for saying that because I thought I was the only one. And it's like, it's amazing. It's, it's seriously an overwhelming 
percentage of people have had some degree of mental health struggle, be it because of traumatic events or because of injury or both. But it's, it's, it's so weird. Like people always say, like, we've got to break down these barriers. We've got to normalize these conversations. But it's so weird to me that we have to because so many people have been on that same path or will be at some point in their life. So it's, it's that, yeah, it's absolutely remarkable. I absolutely. feel like the Academy Awards need to have a whole section of, of first responders, military and civilians for their incredible performance of I'm okay, because we're so oh, good at it. Yes. And that then tells everyone else from the inside looking out, well, shit, it's just me. Everyone else is fine. And people are looking at you going, well, shit, it's just me. James is fine. You know what I mean? And this is this crazy facade where, no, some people are having a great day. Don't get me wrong. Some people are doing really well. But so many of us aren't. And, and when you pull that facade down and say, I am hurting or I was hurting, let me tell you my story, you get this, this, this kind of gasp aside from the room and then as you said the microphone turns off you go have coffee and people come out the, out the woodwork and say hey i'm hurting too and as you said so many of us are it's so remarkable like i heard this analogy once that every day you have a number of events good and bad and you take your bad events and you take your struggles and you take your pressures and stuff and you put them in a mason jar and you screw the lid on it and you put it on top of a shelf well, you don't know how strong that shelf is. So if you've had a fulsome life, especially a life of service, where you try and help others, uh, you're going to have a lot of jars on that thing. One day, that thing's going to come crashing down. And it's just physics. It can only take so much weight. It's just the way it is. And I've found that I think the people that get themselves into the deepest hole now when I say that, let me, let, me, let me qualify that a little bit, that I would say without the uh, additional influences of drug and alcohol abuse, I would say the people who get themselves in the deepest holes sometimes are those that we view as the strongest. Because they'll be walking along and, oh, you're struggling with that weight that you're carrying? Well, let me take a little bit of that for you. And they keep doing that. And soon they're underneath this burden but they can't walk anymore. But they've always been so strong. Now they feel like they're letting everybody else down. Like they're not used to being in this position. And there's a great song. I forget who sings it, but um, it's the Superman song where it says, um, um, it's, it's hard to fly with the clouds beneath your, your feet basically when you're scared of flying in the first place. Is it uh, the Five for Fighting song? Is that right? Yes, yeah. it is. There we go. Thanks. That's who it was. And I've always viewed that as like, that's so accurate. Like, like I've got one brother in particular who is always, you know, he's always like, man, you know, the stuff that you do, like, that's crazy. You know, when I was with off and, you know, looked at me like, you know, and this is my, my biggest brother. You know, he always looked at me with this pride and this respect. And, uh, yeah, it was that cloak. It was like, yeah, well, take off my cape for a minute because it's difficult. And sometimes I'm terrified. And 
when you're being crushed underneath that weight, uh, it's hard to put your hand up. And I have to say that in this journey, I had one guy who was like within my troop when I was like the TYC or the IC, I was always really hard on the guys. Like if you feel like you're off after a training event, especially when we're using explosives, like you have to report to the MO and you have to get, get the doc to sign off on everything and like, make sure you're checked out, make sure that you're healthy. I tried to be engaged with the guys, with their family and tried to have an open door, whether or not I succeeded. I mean, that's for the, the annals of time history to decide, but that I tried to be that for everybody. But it was actually one of my own guys that one day looked at me because I kept dropping the wrong word in the conversation we were having. And he looked at me and side note, apparently when you're in the desert doing research on different explosives and pressure waves, and you do that for a couple of weeks and you're concussive, apparently going and parting your face off in Vegas for 36 hours straight and then flying for 20, 10 or 12 hours. Apparently that's not good for recovering. <laughs> you just now, go, go diving for a few hours too and then come up really yeah, fast. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's right. Just get it all in there, right? <laughs> so in my defense, I didn't know I was concussive. But when we got back to work, he looked at me and I kept on putting the wrong words in there. And he looked at me and he said, are you okay? And I said, well, I've got a headache and I feel a bit off. And he said, well, have you been to the dock? And he held my feet to the fire, you know, like, here I was, do as I say, not as I do. And I was like, you're right. And that was, that was the day that I walked in. And Mary Pierre, our, our, uh, I, I didn't even, our med administrator, uh, she's the one that looked at me and she was like, you need to wait right here. And she went and interrupted the doctor just from how I looked. I was like, you need to come see Brennan. So it was, yeah, it's remarkable. And I'm lucky that I had people like, like, like Dave, Mary Pierre and other people. And needless to say, my wife and my kids to support me and to, to help me through that journey. So I, I mean, I was pretty fortunate. And there's some people out there without that network. So those are the people that we need to really reach out for. Yeah, hundred percent. Well, I want to hit one more topic before we go to some some closing areas and talk about what you're doing now, what your family's doing now too. Is another interesting venture there. Um, let's talk about the therapies that are working. So, um, you know, talk to me about nutrition, plant medicine, and the other things that you particularly have found work for you. The biggest thing for me is you need to cut the pace, um, which is hard especially uh, in our communities, um, guys, uh, girls like to be like, they're, they're hard chargers. That's what, that's what got them into this position in the first place. That's what created the mess that they're in, right? So scaling that back is very difficult. It's got to be a whole change of attitude. And you really have to embrace your downtime and your rest as medicine. Like I said, that's what my wife says. She says, you know, you're, like your nap, I do usually crush an afternoon nap. She said, that's just before dinner. So that's, that's your medicine. In other words, I think she's saying you're really a grumpy bastard if you don't get your nap. So <laughs> that's, Read between the lines. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's so true. And um, she understands like the chaotic environments sometimes are, are difficult for me. So there's no pressure socially or anything else. You know, she always asks how I feel. Um, so that's the first thing you got to cut the pace and you got to be open and honest with yourself and with your family, with your support network. You've got to reach out. 
you absolutely have to, because it's not going to be just a mental health issue or just a brain health issue. There's going to be overlap. No matter what's going on, you cannot at this point do it alone, because as I said before, you can't use a broken brain to power yourself through this crisis. Uh, you know, so you need help with that. You need to stay active. Uh, but as I, you know, said before, I have difficulty with my threshold still, and I've been battling this for a while. Um, so you may never find the complete, like, I can max out my performance without dummying myself. You'll never hit that mark. You'll always be around the threshold, but you can improve it. Um, first thing I do in the morning is I get up, I uh, get my girls going, I take my dog out. And it could be 10 minute walk. It could be a one hour walk. I'm, I'm fortunate where I live. We get out in the wilderness. We get out in the country in the fresh air, free from distractions. And it really helps me center myself. It really gets my blood flowing, which is extremely important for brain health. Uh, just a little bit, even just that walk, so important for health. And it really lets me, um, it's almost like my morning yoga or spiritual retreat. And it sounds ridiculous, but I can, I really envision like with each step that I'm pushing the world away from me, as opposed to pushing myself along the top of it. Like I'm pushing those pressures away. That focus and that mindset does help me quite a bit. Um, that walk sets me up for my day. It lets me clear my head. I start off in the morning with a million thoughts running around in my brain, little short circuits going over. So that's me reading written on paper schedule, but how I prepare myself. That nutrition, oh my lord. Like that is a whole topic. Like you gotta eat right. You gotta take it. We are there's no excuse for North Americans to not eat be eating properly. There's a great book out there called Food, and they talk about the seven-word diet. Eat food, mainly plants, not too much. And I subscribe to that. Sugar is a treat. I don't drink cola. I never have. Like, I'll have the odd one. Like, I seriously, maybe two a year. Uh, I don't do that. I've cut back on the sugar in my coffee and my tea. I don't even drink, I haven't for years drank pure juice. I always water my juices down because it's too high in sugar. You got to cut the sugars. You got to cut the simple carbohydrates. There is increasing amounts of evidence that a well-rounded diet, heavy and leafy greens, is the best medicine for both physical health and mental health and brain health. So what they have found is that there are nutrients in leafy greens that keep you from developing neurological tangles, which basically choke out uh, receptors in the brain. And they just promote, they promote brain health. So, you know, each day I'll have a, the simple way to do it. My, my wife's like, I'm blessed. She's an incredible chef and she's, like always makes healthy, well-rounded meals that are fantastic. But on top of that, or when she abandons me to go see her parents, stuff like that, and I'm left to my own devices, 
my fail safe is I'll have a smoothie every day, midday, where I take like frozen fruit and a handful of spinach, a big handful of it and yogurt and some juice or milk or almond milk. And I throw it in the blender and I blend that all up. You're at least getting your basic amount of nutrients just from that every day. It's easy. It's simple. And supplementation, you know, you guys, uh, have a great supplement company that's, that's associated with your podcast. Um, yeah. Thorn. Yeah. Thorn's fantastic. I, since we first talked, I've actually, uh, like, uh, cyber them a little bit here in Canada. We've got a great company that, uh, I found because the military asked me to look into them when I was still serving. Um, so I went with our, like our smart people, our medical people, I went and talked to them about brain injuries and they, they created this formula. They found sort of by accident, they're looking at, uh, ways of improving, uh, endurance performance for long range activities like marathons and stuff and the stressors and the chemical changes and stuff in the brain. And then the nutrients that could support healthy brain function and activity they took all of that and they made this drink called mind gain. Um, it's fantastic. It's a healthy boost for your brain and it's it, the bioavailability on it is very well calculated. So you're not basically pissing away your supplement money. Uh, there's no sugars or no fillers or anything, which is actually quite rare to find. And there's some great companies like Thorne, like Statera that, that, that have, pharmaceutical grade nutritional supplementation. It's not drugs. It's hundred percent healthy for you. So that I, I quite often uh, will, will use that supplement. Um, it's not something you can really get too much of. Uh, I have probably four or five of those drinks a week. Um, I find it cost effective. Uh, the other big one for me is omega-3s. And, you know, the research is not, is not even up for debate anymore. And it's mind-blowing to me that we're not prescribing omega-3s to people who are in high-risk environments, NHL players, NFL players, CFL players, uh, law enforcement, first responders, firefighters, military, especially people in the breaching and sniping communities where they're getting these exposures all the time, it has been conclusively proven in laboratory studies that a healthy daily dose of omega-3s helps promote healthy brain cognitive function. But the other thing is it also helps insulate the brain against injury and protect your neural pathways. So what they have found is that by super dosing after a brain injury is induced, that they increase recovery time. But the more interesting thing is by super dosing prior to the injury in the first place, they also reduce the impact of that injury. So, you know, especially if you're prone to brain injury, then you're going to engage in something like hockey. Like I still play old man beer league hockey. Um, it's, you know, I've talked to my doctors about it. It helps with my balance, with my um, visual tracking, with my, uh, um, my vision, my coordination. Uh, and yes, I'm a horrible hockey player, especially for a Canadian. But, uh, you know, I get it there and it's fun 
and its social interaction. These are all things important for good brain health and mental health. Before I go, I always have, on hockey days, I have, I do a double dose of my omega-3s. Um, yeah, you can't, you can't go wrong. It's pretty hard to have too much of a nutritional supplement. Uh, you know, the education is easy. It's out there. Um, so these are just basic, basic things uh, that anybody can do. The big ones, again, are leafy greens, hydration, which I sort of glossed over, and appropriate supplementation. And get healthy, get moving, stay active, stay engaged socially. You got to do brain games, playing cards with friends, they say, because you're doing counting and you're socially interacting and stuff. They say it's one of the healthiest things that you can do for, for brain health. You know, and you can do it in perpetuity. So all those old people playing bridge, you know, on you, you know, yeah, it's just so much, so much. The biggest thing, most important, ask for help. It's out there. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for that perspective. It's funny when you talked about the supplement, I just posted a thing on social media. I think it was yesterday. And it's one of those like silly TikToks. But the guy is like me at 19 after taking three pills from a stranger. And it's like techno music in the background. And it says the next one is like me at 30 looking on the back of the vitamin box to see if I can take two. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. That's hilarious. Yeah. Because, you know, the, in good humor, there's always truth. And that's there. Yeah. Exactly. We can go out and crush a happy meal and, and a Big Mac and a half case of beer. But then we're worried about this, this nutritional supplement. And these are questions I get all the time. Are you sure that's healthy? Yeah, it's kale. It's gross, but <laughs> it's good for you. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, just before I let you go, I want to make sure that we talk about your daily fixed coffee and then uh, tell me about X-Tech development as well. Oh, thanks. Thanks so much. So my wife and I, my wife was always in the service industry as well. And she worked, as I said, she worked with Boys and Girls Club. She worked with uh, people with developmental disabilities. She's worked with the aged uh, she's got a lot of compassion. Uh, she'd have to be, be married to me, but, uh, she's, uh, yeah, she's an angel. Uh, so now that our service careers are winding down, the end of our service careers, we are determined it's not going to be the end of our service to our communities. And we're both big coffee fans. It seems like everybody is opening a coffee roaster or a cafe or whatever. We really like it. We really like the ambiance. We like the fact that there's a place. I mean, hey, I love a glass of whiskey or a beer as much as the next guy, but we love that there's places that you can go, social interaction where everybody feels welcome and there's you know, no alcohol present, et cetera. We really wanted to open a cafe in our little tiny town here. It's prohibitively expensive right now. So we've sort of gone reverse of how most people do. Most people will open a cafe and do their own roasts, and then they'll start selling through e-commerce. We're, we're doing e-commerce first. We're, not, we're pretty lazy. When you want something done the most efficient way, find the laziest people to do it. So we're not doing our own roasting. That's a whole science in and of itself. And everybody has a different taste that they want to develop. But we've really embraced some local Canadian roasters. Um, so we've got uh, uh, Perdido coffee, we've got Gothrider coffee, uh, and we've got brown bag coffee, and one from the soft community is Arrowhead coffee. Um, 
So those are our four main roasters right now. We carry their coffees and we distribute for them, both to retail and to individuals. Um, so we're a wholesale distributor. We are continuing to add more and more products to our lineup, like Man Soap, which is uh, out of uh, just across the city from us uh, on the Quebec side of the river, um, and some supplement products from Statera. And uh, we believe in attaching humanity and community to any private enterprise or business. We don't think that like capitalism and, and our ethos and morality, they're not mutually exclusive. They should be mutually inclusive. We believe in building communities as well as business. So our goal is to be as sustainable as possible environmentally and to build sustainable communities, not just in environmental fashion, but that are, that are helpful to one another. So percentage of our sales from each product go to different charities. And the roasters that we have picked also have charities that they support. So you're sort of getting double the bang for your buck. So our slogan is um, coffee with a conscience. It's all ethically sourced and it is all ethically sold. It's all, all Canadian ownership. Each of the roasters is Canadian owned. We're very Canadian focused. Uh, and then we branch out from there, from Canada to our closest allies, the US, the UK, the Australians, the New Zealands. And then from there, we're trying to really um, put our, our ethics and morality into every product that we sell and not support companies and nations that we can't abide the, their actions. Um, so yeah, we really want to spike up community engagement with this. And we're just, we've just launched, we're hitting our first farmer's market this weekend. We're very excited about it. Uh, hopefully we create a big, a big buzz in the industry and we're trying to embrace other local artisans, et cetera, and create a little bit of a movement. So where can people find the coffee? Uh, definitely online is your best source. So, uh, if you go to yourdailyfixcoffee.com. Uh, we can ship any of these products on there to you. Um, we've got flat rate shipping prices. Um, yeah, and we can offer different taste notes, et cetera. Like there's some of the coffees there that I still like to have with, with cream or even cream or sugar, but there's others like some of our um, um, origin coffees like Brazilian origin or Colombian or Indian origin where they're... Um, uniquely sourced from those areas from specific regions and for me i like the taste so much that i don't want to subdue it with cream or sugar so it depends on what you want but it's a great way to experiment with different tastes as well and which is like we just love coffee and we love community so hey if we're going to give this a whirl see if it takes off see if we can create a movement and it's something we enjoy anyways I love it. Yeah, I love I love coffee, so uh, I'm part of that movement with you. And I love that I know kind a of guy social that business. Can hook you up. <laughs> Excellent. Well, then the other side, obviously, the the training with law enforcement. You have ex tech development. So tell me about that. So that's uh, funny how this came about, and it's already been set on its uh, head a little bit. So I started off. I said, "Well, I'll do a little." Like I think after 21 years as an explosive specialist and bomb technician. 26 countries, worked with law enforcement, worked domestically, worked overseas, worked with various militaries. I, I think 
I'm not an expert, but I think that I have a perspective that I can provide that may help round out other agencies. Um, and I think we can all learn from one another. So I, I offer a, a consultancy. I can set up training. I can provide a perspective. I can assess your, your IED technicians or breaching technicians. Um, more than that, what I've fallen into sort of backwards uh, is um, because we like helping each other out, especially in the veteran community. I don't know. It's funny. It seems like especially um, like the guys that uh, uh, guys and girls that I served in Afghanistan with, the people that, that bonded together in hard times and our soft people and SF people, they really support each other in their civilian enterprises afterwards. So I really like introducing different groups together when they have common goals or common products and try and get some symbiosis happening. So what I've just started monetizing, I was doing it for completely for free, but I realized I was spending way too much time for no return, introducing people and showing them how their products could be improved, et cetera. So now that's, that's become a, a side, side path of, of X-Tech development where, where we'll, we'll try and connect you with the right people to grow your product, grow your defense and law enforcement technologies. And, and we only support, I'd love to be able to turn off and just do things for money. Uh, unfortunately for my pocketbook, I'm unable to do that, but I go to sleep very well at night. I'll only support products and people that I believe in and that I believe are safeguarding things or moving things forward for our first responders and our military communities. So yeah, that's the two sides of it. We'll set up your training, we'll provide your training and some of your training tools, or we'll assist you in developing your own path and your own network. Brilliant. Where can people find that online? Definitely uh, xtechdevelopment uh, at gmail.com. And that comes right to my desk. And then I will, if, if required, I've got a very, um, I would say, an established network of friends and associates in different industries that uh, we will sit and we'll talk with you to the define what direction we need to push you in to get you the best expert for your product or service. Excellent. Well, I just want to say thank you so much. It's been a three-hour conversation that we've I had. I know. I feel really bad. No, <laughs> no, no. It's, it's amazing. Like Mine literally have this gone from... This guy doesn't shut up. No, no. Yeah. But that's what I love. You know, one, some of mine are 30 minutes long. It's so all the person can spare. Some of them have been four and a half hours long, which is... Well, hopefully you, you get a couple minutes of usable dialogue. No, yeah. there's, there's so much there. So we've been all over the place. We've hit so many different areas from, you know, your perspective in, in the engineer and explosive world to TBIs and mental health and everything in between. So I just want to thank you so much for being so generous with your oh, time. Oh, man. I love your show. I love what you're doing. I love the people you've had on there. Tell Tim that I'd love to hate him, but I can't. And, uh, and uh, yeah, you know, keep doing what you're doing. I think you're adding so much, so much to the, to the community and especially to the first responder and military portion of it. I think it's uh, I think it's motivating for people to see their brothers and sisters out there like really moving the ball down the field. I think it's great, man. You keep doing what you're doing. Definitely stay in touch. <laughs> <laughs>